Hey everyone, it's Scott here. Um, I'm not going to take too much of your time. I just wanted to say, hey, it's been a couple of weeks since you heard my beautiful voice and I thought you really needed to hear that. I also wanted to talk to you about this feed drop we're doing right here. What you're about to listen to is an episode of the newest show on the Doof Network called Decomposing Worm. In this show, our friend Matthias from Do the Right Thing and his friend Clarence are talking about Wild Bo's Worm, but they're doing it a little bit different than we did it. They have divided the book into six giant chunks and they are doing two episodes per chunk one an overview episode and one a perspectives episode and it's the perspectives thing that i think is really cool um they are basically going to look at this book from different perspectives um they're going to analyze it with different um literary theory different critical theory and just kind of take a look at the book a little bit differently than anyone's done before, let alone Matt and I. Um, we think it's really cool. We think it's totally different from the way we did this book. And and I've really enjoyed listening to these first two episodes. And I, you know what? I think you're going to like it too. So uh, what you're about to listen to is episode two, which is the perspectives episode on their first book, their first of six books. Uh, this one is over arcs one through eight of Worm. So um, take a listen if you like it subscribe to their feed. You can just type decomposing worm into your podcatcher and subscribe to their feed and you will see all the episodes as they come out. I believe those come out on Friday mornings um, and take the ride with them because we think you're going to love it. So uh, that's that's all I had. Enjoy the show. Uh, Hopefully we'll see you soon with some more Weaver Dice Vegas. But until then, let's uh, let's decompose some worm, huh? Welcome to Decomposing Worm, a worm analysis podcast. That's Clarence. He's the first-time reader and literary expert. And that was Matthias. He's read the story before. In this 12-episode series, we're using critical theory to explore the superhero web serial Worm from a broader perspective, covering Worm in six 300,000-ish word chunks. Yeah, and today is part two of book one, Perspectives. Uh, Here we'll begin applying literary theory to Worm, combing through the first eight arcs uh, with the lenses of a couple of theorists, (laughs) a couple of theorist theories, um, and we'll go into how we're using them a little bit later on. If you haven't read arcs one through eight, uh, please do. This is also a full spoilers discussion. And if you haven't listened to the prior episode, I also recommend that. That's where we uh, did a close reading of the first eight arcs as well. Um, so yeah, so this episode's a little bit different. This is our first Perspectives episode. Um, so we'll, we'll all be uh, kind of figuring out what the, uh, this this bit is. We have... Um, um, this is going to be a, less directed than um, than the, the overview episodes and how we've got where normally is. We don't have a bit-by-bit guide. We have several conversation, conversation topics that we're going to cover. Um, but uh, hopefully uh, you guys will learn a bit about uh, literary theory as we go through. Um, I think today we're focusing on uh, Foucault and Marx, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with little, I mean, there's a little bit of Kenneth Burke, you know, tossed in just a bit. Just just a, just a sprinkle. You know. Just some flavoring. So first we're going to start with some character studies. Uh, then we're going to do our, we called them essays, but as we've 
uh, gone through and planned this episode, it's we're discovering it's less going to be like essays and more explorations of uh, this this section of worm through the critical theories that we're using. Yeah. So we don't have like very specific. Um, you know, theses that we're arguing for, you know, usually when you write an essay, you are trying to com- communicate that, like, this is how you should interpret this part of the text, right? Yeah, the essays are, like, are a lot tighter and mm-hmm. than what we, we've kind of sort of, like, amassed and yes. kind of picked out particular things that we want to look at and kind of examine through these different lenses and kind of ha- and and draw those conclusions, but not necessarily, we don't have, like, a not necessarily cohesive, but like really tight argument. Yeah, it's kind of like more of just kind of like a if if someone wanted to you know disprove our stuff, mm, um, yeah. like they they could pretty easily. But um, that when when you're writing an essay, usually it's like you're you're constructing a lot of a lot of evidence and really really drawing out your conclusions that way. You know, everyone can really truly understand that this is correct, right? Yeah, yeah. So we're and I feel like more the difference is that like. When you're doing the essay, there's a lot more of clipping of things and kind of like tying them together, creating something that's like really like solid, I guess. Mm-hmm. Not to say that like our work hasn't been, you know, full. We're and, not making you know, stuff up. I yeah, will we're say. not just kind of like arbitrarily doing things. <laughs> yes. um, it's just we, we've let it have a little bit more air. It's, it's more of like a discussion type, mm-hmm. you know, lecture type, like there's a little bit more looseness to it. Yes. And to, to transition to our, our next point that we want to make sure that we communicate, um, we are not experts. Yes, we claim no expertise in our analysis. We, we are, are We are only students and slightly after mm-hmm. students. Yes. Um, we're not like fully formed professorial literary experts who like know everything and have spent, you know, 50 years studying this. Yeah. So I, like, basically just keep that in mind. Yeah, yeah, we we know that we know most of the basics. We feel mm-hmm. fairly confident in knowing those basics, but um, you know, actual literary professors have not just read, you know, the original theorists. They've read uh probably hundreds of of essays yeah. and articles like, on all the, the, the people way that came that, after. Like, a lot of academic papers and and theorists were like is there's a paper but then there's like this whole, you know, kind of secondary layer of like responses and then there's like a third right. like layer, you know, like so it's like this continuing discussion that has been going on for like a while that mm-hmm. we, we, we don't know fully about everything. Um, yeah. So there's going to be stuff that, you know, if, if, if a professor is listening to this it might be not, I, I don't want to say wrong, but probably <laughs> maybe not always every single time. Yeah, quite exact. The best interpretation, but it's our interpretation and, and we are trying our best here. Um, that said, I, I really do think that a lot of people are going to be able to, to learn some stuff. And at the very least, We'll point you in the right direction if you want to learn more. Yes. Um, yes. And then you guys can do a, a better, better essay than than <laughs> we do. So, um, which which I absolutely welcome. Um, yeah. Which I mean, that's that's really like I feel like that's a secondary point of of writing essays is so that there is discussion, that there is this kind of back and forth and and interaction, mm-hmm. this kind of conversation, you know, of mankind. Whoever wrote that, I don't remember who it was. That sounds beautiful. I have but, no idea who you know, you're talking about. You know, you know, like about. the like dialogue of of everyone. Mm, that sounds. That, I mean, that makes sense. I don't know who that is. I don't remember who it was. It was somebody that we read recently. Well, that shows how well I did my readings. Um, okay, let's go ahead and, and yeah, jump into our <laughs> character studies. Yeah. So uh, I'm starting off here with uh, talking about Danny. Um, mm. So there's there's a lot to, to to cover here, and I I have a lot of 
things to say. I'm almost not even sure where to start because it's it's really hard to uh, look at a character that gets this much like analysis and um and and talk about that as a whole. I think mm-hmm. the main thing with with Danny that I'm going to try and start and finish with is that he my thesis for him, I guess, is that he's someone who's trying really hard and it's just like not enough, but mm. I don't really think it's fair to blame him for that. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, obviously uh, before the story starts, right, his his wife died and uh, we know that he didn't really handle that well. Um, and we're not, I, I don't remember Clarence um, how much the story goes into that in, in, in this Um I feel like there was just a little bit where, mm-hmm. like, we see him kind of, uh, especially, like, with the telephone, I think, or with the, like, cellular phone mm-hmm. that Taylor had that it, um, that he kind of had that same sort of thing of, like, trying to create this kind of, like, small, you know, amount of control in, in order to, like, prevent further disaster sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think loss of control is kind of something that really defines him in in his relationship with his daughter Mm. so so he he you know has this he loses his wife he doesn't really handle that well um and um the the next kind of like relevant event that we are looking at is you know the the locker incident and the aftermath right um so he had no idea that something like that was going to happen um and in the aftermath you know we, we see him really uh, stand up for her, his daughter, right? He's you know yelling at the yeah, school yeah. administrators and stuff like that. But in the aftermath of it, he didn't necessarily do that much, which is probably the most like concerning bit. Um, I have a quote here. Um, I have I have two quotes here. So the first, um, there was in the in the aftermath of the locker incident, mm-hmm. there was pl- precious little Danny could do on the subject either. He had threatened to sue the school after his daughter had been taken to the hospital, and school board had responded by settling, uh, promising they would look out for her uh, to prevent such events from occurring in the future. And it was a feeble promise made by a chronically overworked staff, and it didn't do a thing to ease his worry to ease his worries. His efforts to have her change schools have been stubbornly countered with rules and regulations about the maximum travel times a student was allowed to have. The only other school within the reasonable distance of Taylor's uh, place of residence was Arcadia High, and it was already desperately overcrowded with more than 200 students on the list requesting admittance. Um, and then the other section I want to pull out is... Um, so this is in that, this is in that uh, first uh, interlude. Mm-hmm. Um, if he went downstairs to find his daughter, would he find her hurting or hurt? Or would his presence make things worse? Her own mm. father, seeing her at her most vulnerable after humiliation after at the hands of bullies. He thinks that she went out to be bullied, basically. Um, she had told him in every way except articulating it out loud that she didn't want that. She had pleaded with him, with body language and averted eye contact, unfinished sentences and things left unsaid, not to ask, not to push not to see when it came to the bullying. He couldn't say why exactly. Home was an escape from that, he'd, sus- he'd, sus- he'd suspected. And if he recognized the bullying made it a reality here, maybe she wouldn't have that relief from it. Maybe it was shame that his, bother- that his daughter didn't want him to see her like that, didn't want to be weak- that weak in front of him. He really hoped that wasn't the case. So um, th- to get through all that, basically, um, the-, the reason I want to pull that out is Danny doesn't confront the school administration and the bullies and stuff like that um until you know the school meeting um but it's pretty clear that like taylor was telling him 
in every way, right, not to do that, right? Yeah. He, I mean, he yeah. is basically going along with his daughter's wishes and just trying to, um, you know, do the do the best thing for her. Um, and we see from her perspective that this is also true, right? Uh, there's multiple times I, I think where he doesn't press her on it, and she, she expresses that she feels relief, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think that's like a place to start with when you know we don't maybe we we shouldn't blame him, right? Um, like so, I always felt like there perhaps like should have been a conversation that happened earlier, mm-hmm. just in the sense of like. I don't know. Like, I, I feel like uh, it didn't even have to, like, you know, extend past just them two. But I, I feel like when things are left unsaid like this, like with this amount of like pain, I guess, to carry every day. Yeah. I feel like can be really grating. And even and, though and- even though like both parties are, are actively avoiding that sort of, you know, confrontation there, I feel like there would be a catharsis. Yeah. It, like... I mean, the right thing is for Taylor to have a place to express it. And, and yeah. you know, another thing is, like, looking outside the text, this isn't ever, you know, mentioned in the text. So I feel like it's – I almost feel it's a little bit unfair to bring it into here because it's kind of like I, – I don't think it's – the text is saying this is Danny's fault. But, like, there are, you know, other options like, you know, sending her to, to therapy or yeah, yeah. to I feel move like away also... from the city, right? Yeah, yeah. Um. But then Which, I suppose are there like other things that are holding him back? Yeah, it, it's know, one of those things where like in the city. Yeah, where I I just like I don't know enough to I, the text doesn't tell us enough to you know f- for us to understand that it was an option or if it wasn't right. Yeah. yeah. Um. So in in other sections, um, we actually see him like really stand up for his daughter like pretty well actually. Or it, I mean, it's really clear that he is on her side and like willing to work for her and to fight for her. Mm-hmm. Um, after, you know, she punches Emma, they, they uh, pull over on the side of the road and she finally, you know, admits what's going on um, at this moment of extreme vulnerability, uh, yeah. partially probably maybe due to the uh, concussion that she has, but it's not entirely clear. Um, but he holds her and, it's this really sweet moment between the two of them. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So he does a he does a pretty good job there. Um, and then, of course, the chapter after that is the school meeting, where, like, I, I going back to an older uh, quote from from his interlude. Um, Danny was helpless where it counted, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he he feels impotent, and that's what happens during this this meeting too. Uh, yeah, he, he's kind of like just got a front row seat to watching this like institutional you know like apathy i guess yeah and he he's really trying i mean he tries really hard here he he uh yells at everyone and Mm -hmm. making some really good you know points really showing that he really does care about this and really sees this injustice yeah um it feels it um but he's just not he doesn't have the power to to change that by himself and it kind of is like really unfortunate and but it's not his fault right it's not his fault that he can't change what the how the school you know works how yeah, yeah. he can't change the system by himself and in, in his free time you know he is that, that that is his job right he's a union spokesperson his whole like thing is right he's he wants to bring back the ferry which he thinks he's gonna uh, would would revitalize the economy and mm-hmm. you know allow the, the. I feel like that's why it's so frustrating too. Is that like 
he he embodies the like a physical manifestation of like fighting against institutions mm-hmm. you know and kind of as like individuals being... banding together but in this moment the institution is housing an interpersonal conflict mm-hmm. so that his tactics of of interacting in in like conflict resolution on an interpersonal state level i suppose versus like a fighting institution like once they interact like it's it's so difficult to to make any of it matter or like work i guess mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's um it, 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 he's facing kind of like completely unbalanced odds too right yeah. uh his his first description when taylor first describes him is that he looks a little defeated constantly bewildered and a little defeated which is mm-hmm. just i mean kind of is his character especially as we as we move on later on right because he doesn't know what's going on with his daughter. Yeah. So yeah. moving on to the the to the the confrontation scene, he. So this is really the part that most people point out and say that like he failed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because he confronts Taylor, in you know he traps her, and without knowing, you know that's like her worst trigger, basically, right? It calls her back to like the locker incident, like literally mm-hmm. feeling mm-hmm. trapped in the other times. Yeah. yeah. Um. And during through her narration, we can really see how like horrible this makes her feel. But it's not super clear that he should have known that specifically feeling trapped inside a location is what's so bad for her. Um, yeah, he's kind of like kind of figuring out in the dark because he doesn't yeah, and- he doesn't have any of those like signpost type things a lot of it is he just doesn't have the information um Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i'm not saying i'm not blaming taylor either right she's in this horrible situation and i get the rationale behind you know not wanting to tell him because then he you know has to do something and doing something ends up in a you know terrible it makes things worse right Mm -hmm. that's how she feels anyway uh and so she feels that she can't use him as a as a confidant possibly because of that one time that he lost his, you know, temper around her. And that was, you know, after, in the aftermath of the locker incident, right? But so after Taylor is, is gone for a while, right, He she's skipping school and he finds out about it. He's really upset, be- not necessarily just because she's skipping school, because he can understand that, but because uh, she lied to him about it, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it's like, not only did he not have information, she's been supplying incorrect information. So it, the other thing I want to point at, and some this sometimes gets... Um, forgotten in some discussions of him is that so in in this you know moment of just like not knowing what to do right he calls uh graham which is taylor's uh grandmother who like doesn't like him and, and this this is um taylor's mother's mother i think so yes okay, yeah, yes yeah. that yeah that doesn't like him because he married her daughter right yeah yeah um and she's the one it says in the text that she, uh or he says that she convinced him to you know do this this confrontation right yeah yeah so i i don't think the idea necessarily like comes from him specifically so this giant you know swing in swing in parenting isn't just him like normally overcorrecting he also has this mm-hmm. outside influence yeah yeah and you know you can really see how you know why he would go to that outside influence because he just doesn't know what to do here um so danny is like he he's doing his best in a terrible situation, right? Uh, the mother, their the mother and and wife, and really clearly someone who you know was a really strong connection for Taylor, even though she doesn't think about her super often, um, yeah. is gone, and 
neither of them seem to be completely over it, right? He still sleeps on one side of the bed, right? Yeah. Other stuff yeah. like that. His daughter is traumatized and he doesn't know how to deal with that necessarily. And he doesn't want to push, but like, I mean, the question is, what does Taylor even need, right? She doesn't know. She talks about it, it, at the end of the confrontation scene. Um, she like says, "I need," and then flounders for words, mm-hmm. and it's not even space because he's given her tons of space, so she doesn't ask for that. Um, and he doesn't know that she's a supervillain, and how could he know, right? Yeah, the, it's like there's two totally different stories happening mm-hmm. um, between the two of them. In this confrontation, I feel like even just yeah, like throughout throughout yeah. the entire um, eight arcs is that he's he's over here kind of in this sort of like, you know, this story about like loss and kind of coming to terms with that and like loss of control and like this very like, you know, individual familial story where she's kind of like off doing her thing. And he's kind of this this kind of like thought in the back of her head of like, I need to resolve this, but I have all this other stuff happening. So I feel like that kind of like imbalance of priority also kind of yeah. compounds this situation. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the question I want to ask is like, what was he supposed to do other than, you know, the the stuff that like the moving away and the therapy? Yeah. Um, because like I said, it doesn't come up in the text as an option either way, you know, and it just like I feel like the text is like doesn't want to have that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So maybe those, I'll, I'll say that much. But other than that, right, like how was he supposed to talk to her, right? Was he supposed to push? And I mean, I guess so, but I feel it's like the kind moment of like when and where and yeah. That he like by not kind of opening it up at the beginning, I think, mm-hmm. um, when she went to the hospital um, after the yeah. locker incident where he kind of like, you know, flips his lid sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. I think in that moment entering into entering into a conversation after having like calmed down even just like a touch and like kind of turning that on its head being like i'm i am furious not at you but at the situation and i'm here if you need to like speak and i i i can respond i cannot respond i can like to have that kind of to open the communication then and then have Mm -hmm. this kind of period of if they if like if taylor needs to step back and not talk about it for a while and then feels like she can speak about it. like you know what i mean like i feel like opening the conversation at the beginning yeah would have perhaps yeah. helped yeah um, but it's also hard to like i mean if she's you know in in the hospital bed and yeah she's recently yeah, traumatized also, yeah, she right doesn't wanna, and she's doesn't she has this whole other thing that she's dealing with yeah and, know, and maybe it's like, difficult asking her to talk about it is you know asking her to kind of relive the the trauma yeah, right yeah and I, you know if she wasn't like at full like normal functioning you know immediately after how long did it take right how do you know when is the okay time yeah, right yeah it is he supposed to i like i think there there probably was a way to thread the needle right there's probably multiple ways but I think it's it's still, especially for someone to live something like that, very, very difficult, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, if he had pushed, right? I'm certain there's there's moments where she would want to, to run away, right? Even Absolutely. before yeah. Yeah. the supervillain Because that seemed kind of, decided, that's, yeah. that's kind of her go-to mechanism. Or, or would she have lied? Um, oh, yeah. It, the other thing is, if he had never said anything at all, right? If, if the confrontation hadn't happened... Would she have written the letter 
like I don't know would she have like just stayed and become more and more villainous yeah like especially once it got that far and if we assume it got that far right I think it's almost like there's there's barely any solutions possible yeah she kind Um, of like worked her way into a corner so I'm not I'm not just saying like I haven't been just defending Danny this whole time like the thing is like he he did fail his daughter right and and yeah but then the question I suppose is was there a way to not fail her? Right. And the answer is like, yes, but it's not that it's unreasonable to expect that, but like it's Danny's just very human, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, he's he's not a, a perfect parent at all, but he clearly does care about his daughter a lot. And it, he's facing a very, very difficult situation. So I think so. So where I'm going with this is I think Danny's just like a really, really good example of how everyone can kind of look at their parents. I I mean, there's mm-hmm. plenty of people and I'm sure there's a lot of you know you guys listening that have some really, really bad parents um, that this is not the way to look at them, that they are, you know, bad people and very flawed. And I, I don't want to talk like I'm I, I'm excusing that. But someone like Danny and like, I, I don't think anyone has a perfect parent. I think there's everyone can look and and point at some flaws and be like, well, that's the reason, you know, that I turned out this way. Yeah, so. because I mean, they're still like they're still humans and like there's st- like this. Not that to imply that parental people could not be anyways, they still hold like like they're still developing themselves, like they're still becoming mm-hmm themselves and figuring out how they want to kind of approach life yeah um, and it's not like they got to practice yeah yeah like they're still so, i mean we're all still forming you know we're forming mm-hmm. until we die um <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i mean so danny was facing like a lot of tough situations like yeah, multiple yeah. right and i mean he, he i think the key thing is is like he he was missing some in- information right i think if he had that information Perhaps like this might have turned out different if, if he had known that Taylor was a, a, had superpowers, right? Yeah, this might have turned out a lot different, right? Oh, this would maybe a totally different conversation. Yeah, uh, I mean, I don't know if he necessarily do better or, or worse. I would say, I, I mean, I think he would do better, but perhaps I don't know how because much. right now there is no specific explanation that he sees. Mm-hmm. Like besides, yeah, he has no idea. Happened. Like he like, doesn't understand why she's running away. Yeah, all of the actions that she's doing. Like why did she show up with a concussion? Like there's so many things that he doesn't have the full explanation for. That he's mm-hmm. just kind of like piecing it together. And there's a lot of gaps. And I feel like from his perspective, he I understand why he feels at a loss. Why he has to go and seek out counsel and like kind of you know try a different approach. Yeah. I, I, yeah, he didn't know how bad it was either. Yeah, I mean, he yeah. knew, you know, the locker incident, but he didn't know how bad it was after. Yeah, he until... didn't know that it had continued. And then when he did have the information, when he when he underst- when she told him about all the bullying, you know, he went and tried to to do something about it, right? Yeah, tried to yeah. have the the school meeting, and he, you know, he did the best he could there too. Um, so to, to continue on with the reflection, right? Uh, I, Danny's, you know. Like we the 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 fandom has this kind of conversation like a lot. Mm. Uh, basically, every time he comes up, I, and I don't, I'm not saying that anyone that the most common take is just like Danny is a terrible father or Danny is oh. perfect. Like, like I don't think that happens very often. But I I think the text pretty clearly conveys that this is a complicated situation and that a complicated understanding of how this father acted 
is kind of the correct one. And I think that's part of what makes Worm so great a lot of times mm-hmm. with its characters is that it's really hard to come down uh, super strongly on one side or another because there's always mitigating circumstances. There's always explanations for why why they became the way they became. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, it, I mean, it's it's a incredibly complicated situation and just coming to the understanding that you know your your parents are human and that they make mistakes and they made mistakes with you and now you have to deal with that but also you know maybe forgiving them for that eventually i think that's kind of important i think that's an important message that we're kind of getting with here with Tan- with danny yeah yeah uh, yeah a lot so of so that um, go ahead oh i was just going to say like even i don't know they like i think that's something that really sets it apart like even the static characters um that we've encountered i suppose maybe they're not static i don't know if they have growth later on but like um even like small parts like we see the motivations behind everyone Mm -hmm. that like there is nothing that you can take at face value because i mean like everything's complicated yeah i agree so that's that's what i have on danny um i have just a lot of a lot of a lot of stuff i think there's just a lot of stuff going on with them um and we will see how that goes in the future and yeah, how that I'm, I'm changes. Excited to keep hearing about him, hopefully, because mm-hmm. um, he's an interesting one. Yeah. Um, and actually, kind of like your discussion, kind of feeds into into my character study um, mm-hmm. with purity and you know purity, Caden, because um, there is that kind of what I noticed as I was like reading through kind of each of each of her scenes um, is that her identity that she puts first always is like her role as a mother. Mm -hmm. She sees that as this almost like reified figure, but really only to her second child to Aster. Um, Right. But yeah, she, she does a lot of like, um, she uses her child a lot in, in uh, justifying her like behaviors and her actions and her, her, um, her her ideologically rooted um actions i suppose right um i mean i i think all of her actions right including her power yeah yeah um yeah hers is she's a complicated one to kind of pull apart um because so there's there's kind of like everything kind of like mixes up together with her um because she like even in the moments that she's like only seeing herself as a mother to her kids or like seeing herself as only like trying to kind of divorce herself from from kaiser like from his actions or whatever she doesn't she never like truly recognizes like what she's doing yeah like how intertwined her like heroic actions or her supposed heroic actions obviously um like how they're intertwined with like the violence that that um kaiser like continues to do and kind of like she she doesn't really understand or like she doesn't come to terms with the like the reality of what she's doing i guess mm-hmm. or like the reality of of um her beliefs i think um she doesn't see like that they like her beliefs are the same as kaiser's like that there is this like racist ideology beneath both of them just like their methods are different yeah um she doesn't deny his uh explanations like much at all she yeah. doesn't try very hard to no she does not um yeah, because there was there was a I'm skipping ahead a bit, but the moment uh, where she's having a conversation with him, um, 
about this particular point of of how she's she's trying to like justify to herself that she's not she's not the same as Kaiser. Um, mm-hmm. uh, when she's uh, she's like in his office, kind of like trying to get him to help her take down uh, ABB. Um, the where is that quote? <laughs> oh yeah, where she like after she divorces him, she like claims to try and like restructure her thinking, but it's like very clear that she she like has not critically examined the like the roots, the like ideological roots of what she believes and why she has these particular motivations. Like she's not come to terms with her past and like present violence mm-hmm. and like the racial motivation behind both of them. Um, yeah, uh, which is which is why um, I mentioned Kenneth Burke earlier. Um, because like her, he, he, so Kenneth, Kenneth Burke is a veteran from like the 20th century. He like wrote a bunch of, he like spent his whole time like writing about, you know, rhetoric and all of this and, and language, but specifically, um, in his second book, um, after a rhetoric of motives, uh, which is a war of words, a war of words, um, in his book proposal for that, he wrote, um, he was talking about how he was going to write this whole book about, um, exploring that like militaristic ingredient embedded in all aspects of like our language, mm-hmm. um, this kind of violence that that kind of sits beneath words like between them. That sort of the words kind of overlay the violence, or they kind of like cover it up. Um, sort yeah, of, sort so... of in the way of like with um, a Clockwork Orange, where Anthony Burgess writes in this kind of like like whimsical tone, but the entire time like. The tone or like the the way that he writes is meant to kind of veil the violence that's happening do you know what you mean where it's kind of this yeah like... yeah so it's almost euphemistic so so just to mm-hmm. bring up some examples um you're talking about stuff like uh take those criminals down right yeah, or where, um, to put them away or where she's talking about um how she's like trying to clean up the city and like mm-hmm. you know um but what does clean up the city mean, yeah, right? Yeah, they're yeah. Like, so, so you're talking there isn't about... this articulation of like who the bad guys are and like how she's going to keep, like how to keep the city safe and like right. from who, like there's so much, there's so many gaps um, mm-hmm. in, like in the, the words that the, she the uses. The phrase keep the peace, right, is yeah. like, it's, it sounds great. You're, you're holding on to peace. That's wonderful. But the way that it's enforced is through violence and the threat of violence. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so that's what you mean by military, militaristic language that, that Burke's talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so Burke was writing, like, in the aftermath of, like, the U.S. dropping the bombs on Japan. So, like, right. He, that's kind of where he's coming from. But, like, that that concept of, of words holding kind of either, either covering up um, violence... Or kind of like holding the place of violence without like fully articulating it, mm-hmm. um, is something that I feel like uh, is really present in like the language of ideologies. Is that especially like the rhetoric of of kind of like indoctrination or like um, kind of inculcating like specific ideologies into um, youth? I suppose um, mm-hmm. is that is that sort of kind of vague verbiage, you know, where it's like, oh, we're just doing this to keep them safe, and like you know. Uh, this is, you know, all the, um, like, we're, like, keeping it clean, blah, 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 all of it. Like, it's all very, like, once you take a step back and, like, read through what it actually means, and, like, think through what it actually means, there, there, the kind of vagueness of it is, is a lot more threatening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so, okay, so we're gonna st- start, 
Not, not where to start. Sorry, we've we've been going on for a while, but yes. we'll so, we'll begin. So now we have your theoretical basis. Yeah, that's right, kind of like where I'm starting um, from. That's kind of like how I've I've approached looking at. I'll I'll refer to her as Caden for most of it, but um, sure. Um, just because. Yeah, I mean, her name is Purity. She didn't change her name. Ugh. <laughs> oh, but actually, her name, like the name that she has chosen, um, just like this is kind of an aside. Um, mm-hmm. and less about the, like, interpersonal aspect of it, but just, like, taking on the name of, like, Purity, but then, like, later on, she's kind of, think when she's, like, confronting Max, um, you know, confronting Kaiser, like, in his office, and he's like, okay, like, I'll help you, but, like, you gotta come back and work for me, where she's like, oh, more blood on my hands, but she, it's, it's, it's a strange, like, where she's like, I will only have blood on my hands with him, if I'm working for him, mm-hmm. like, what I'm doing right now, like, like attacking lower level members of different gangs, um, specifically different gangs that like are only people of color. Like she, do- like she doesn't s- equate that. Like she doesn't see that they're both right. violent actions. Um, it's it's almost like she's like placed all of the violence ever passed on onto Kaiser. Like she uh, assigns, she kind of like transfers the blame onto him, um, mm-hmm. which she sees, which which we see in um both of her children in her thoughts about both of her children um because in even in like the first few moments with aster where um she's like so determined to make sure that this this baby that she has made will be like she she kind of like idealizes her child um yeah so like i mean like mothers can love their children like that's fine but like she she's like created she's kind of like overlaid this concept of like she's like made her child into like the epitome of innocence and like being untouched by the world and like this physical representation of like a do-over i guess almost Mm -hmm. like this this like new beginning for herself kind of untainted by what she's done before she sees aster as this kind of like this like tangible you know visualization of that um uh, but then in the next moment right after that we see uh we see her interact with Theo. Right. Um, and she's not Which is totally very different. Hard. Totally yeah. different. Um, because she she has, like, full control, I guess, with Aster, right? Like, because, I mean, with a baby, like, the enti- like their entire world is, like, their caregiver, their parent, or their mother, you know? So, like, she has full control over Aster. But then, like, with Theo, like, she feels like she's, like, already fucked up with mm-hmm. this kid. Um, yeah. Because... Um, Theo is like the manifestation of her past decisions, past like infatuations, indulgences, mistakes. Like she, she places all of like what has what went wrong with mm-hmm. between her and and um, Max into this kid. Um, and yeah. she like she does have like care with him, um, where she's like kind of setting up this I like. Mean, oh, sorry. Keep she feels guilty. Yeah. No. So. Definitely. But there's like a difference I think between where she's kind of like she's like I can only give. Like, I feel like I can only hand out, like, small kindnesses, little gestures of love, and hope they help. Like, she feels like she she doesn't have control over him anymore. Yeah. You know? And the thing is, is he's not even that bad. Like, he's not bad at all, actually. He's just... She describes him, right, as, like, ground down, his personality ground down by Mm. Max. And it's like, she's not trying that hard to build it up, either. Yeah, she's just kind of, like, she... The, um... She doesn't make it worse. Yeah, like, she's... She just, I feel like she's kind of, like, 
not necessarily totally given up on Theo, but it's just kind of like, well, I can't, I can't do anything about it. Like you've already been in the world. You've already been with your dad. Like I can't, I can't undo what has already been done. Right. You know, which is like the total counter to um, Aster where she's like, this child is like the only thing that is like good in this world and I must protect her. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what would happen if she just redirected some of that energy (laughs) to Theo. Yeah. Well, because I feel like that, like that dynamic is kind of her perspective on the world too, of like how she treats her two children where she's like, she feels like this world is like already broken, like something fundamentally is wrong with it. And that the only like I I feel like the way that she she parents is kind of wrapped up in the way that she like enacts or she kind of like, you know, carries out her like her, you know, caped actions, I guess you could say, but like the violence that she does um by herself and then also with with Kaiser, like it's all kind of like wrapped up together. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um Yeah. But then that's also because um the the relationship that she's had with Max has been present like throughout this entire time um which i thought that was a really interesting thing to note about her character development is that when she had like when she developed her power he was like the first one that she went to or that he was the first one to like seek her out um i don't remember which direction it went but they began like they began in adolescence this this kind of you know togetherness not necessarily like romantic or anything it was just that he was always present right and that Mm -hmm. like throughout her like adolescence and early 20s like now she's like 30 he's 35 like she's been with him this entire time and no matter like what she like held on to in her childhood the way that like the fact that she's like been so close to him for like that long like she has internalized his like racist beliefs so much so that like like it's not even because she's just like been present and like active with him that like listening to him and like internalizing what he was talking about and how he thought about the world um is that she doesn't even like she can't not not no not that she can't she doesn't recognize um how how much of an influence he has on her beliefs and like like even when she tells herself she's being a better person making the world a better place like she still has those beliefs dictating who she targets like who she attacks um like she she's still like the the continued influence of like his beliefs on her mind like she she hasn't come to terms with that which is what we mentioned before but i feel like that's one of the like fundamental aspects of of like her identity just like in totality yeah is to on a on a slightly different branch mm. he's you know very clearly uh an abusive oh my gosh yes uh, partner right yes and she so she is so she is a victim even as she you know victimizes others uh when she comes to him she there's that little power play thing right yeah like oh my gosh just the concept that like the the way that she was uh like the the here hold on i must read this because it was like it was how he was always playing for power for advantage for dominance all the while he was doing it in a way you couldn't confront if she called him on it he'd play innocent and she'd look like the crazy one, the one in the wrong, sometimes even to herself. Yeah. Yeah, that's textbook. Yeah. Yeah, is that... And so she's just been kind of, like, stuck in this mindset, in this kind of, like, loop, um, where he's he's the one kind of, like, running the show, you know? Yeah. And, like, if even when she, like, to... steps away, Go like, ahead. she's always attached to him. Yeah, yeah, actually, so so that's where I kind of want to go off on a little... Uh, 
tangent again is that so there's this it's a, there's this there's this channel on YouTube. It's the, the alt right playbook. It's actually that's not a channel. It's the uh, it's a series done by this one person. Mm. So it's called the alt right playbook, and it's this person analyzing how the alt right you know uh, captures people and. It, it, how it kind of is like an abusive relationship, yeah, like yeah. in a lot of ways, it isolates people. So mm-hmm. Empire 88 is not how the alt-right works. Uh, it's got a central figurehead. It's got actual people, but I think you can use it as a representation. Yeah. Uh, so he, so it's, it's it's a fully abusive relationship, right? And mm-hmm. when she gets out and, and, you know, she gets out and that's a big thing. And maybe she becomes less horribly like... Uh, physically racist she's probably not hurting as many you know completely innocent people i guess like that's slightly better i guess it seems like it seems like completely racially motivated methods that she saw the difference between her and uh kaiser were like she's out there like like you know enacting violence on other like other gang members i guess or like really just kind of like anybody um but or like the like lower level, but he was more of like like um like putting drugs on the street and like and like more of like a um kind of like a cyclical sort of thing. And she was like immediate violence. Yeah, and she's she's kind of like the the racialized violence that is kind of like acceptable by society. Um, hopefully less now, but I I don't want to get super into it. Mm. But I mean, she's kind of just like a racist cop, right? And yeah, I. Yeah, it, where Guess? it's like she's probably like only hurting like she's probably mostly hurting like criminals, but like probably a lot more than she would if it was a criminal that was white. And she probably has hurt innocent people that she just thought were criminals because she's profiling them. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. um, to, to to go back, what, what the thing I, I wanted to say before is that she's so she she got away right. So she got away from this abusive relationship, but because it's an abusive relationship, she's been like cut off from everyone, mm-hmm. right? She has no support network. The only support, the only person we see her even really talk about talking to, right? She, she Max all, has all of her old teammates, is Theo, which is not at all yeah. like a support network. He's he's still in the he's in that abusive relationship as well mm-hmm. yeah he's uh, kind of like stuck in the middle and of that's kind of how it is with terrible ideologies is that you really need other people to to pull you out other people that are first of all not in that ideology but also people of color and stuff mm-hmm. like that she has no like does she have a day job i don't remember oh, it seemed like she did perhaps because she was talking about vacation time that she ah. took so it seems like this is kind of her like you know nightly thing to do is to go out and beat up people um i wonder i wonder if she works at med hall like at the same company still with mm. max because he's like the the ceo or whatever i don't know it didn't didn't, i don't think it's specified um so in any case i think you know she she got out but she didn't get very yeah she she didn't she's not interacting with people at all Mm -hmm. that are separate from this organization in this ideology yeah because like the people that she is speak is she she's thinking about going and like speaking to or like everyone that is still within that group like with with Kaiser like all the former acquaintances all of this like who are horrible people yeah like she doesn't she doesn't have any sort of external you know help and like and I feel like that sort of like isolated or like that sort of isolation and kind of you know feeds into this this feeling of like 
Aster is like this kind of escape or like this kind of, you know, untouched, uh, like newness away from any of that. Yeah. Yeah. She's the, she's the one innocent person that she talks to. Well, yeah. Besides Theo. But. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was a specific. Oh, yeah. Where she was talking about with Aster. She's like, literally, there was nothing Aster could do, have or be that would make her better than she was. In an odd way, Caden supposed she took refuge in Aster. She found Sukkur in the company of her child in the midst of a world she had little hope for. So it's like she she holds on to um she holds on to Aster as this kind of like singular thing that that separates that is separate from like all of everything that she has experienced already. Mm-hmm. Um which I think is like I, very clearly that's why um when Coyle like kind of unmasks everyone including her that's why she like flips out so much when CBS um, takes her baby, or I, yeah. I should say Child Protective Services, because not everyone calls it CPS. But when, like, you know, her baby is taken away, like, when Aster is gone, she has no rationalized reason to, like, mm-hmm. do anything, like, that she does. Like, she loses control, you know? She she reversed her, like, even worse than we even, like, had a hint of in her... Mm-hmm. Well, not a hint of, yeah. but... Yeah, she's going out and murdering innocent people yeah she like, she throws out like any and all exhibitions um and like this whole like concept of of like citywide violence all of this like no, she's like nothing is good anyways mm-hmm. you know um if she can't find her kid like everything's already broken blah 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 all of this like she's blasting down random yeah like buildings. she's like yeah destroying the city like killing people it's just like this absolute you know like monster yeah like she she like has lost any sort of like any illusion of of uh purity that she has hold held on to like any any tentative hope of like renewal or like being a do-gooder like any of that like all that is like overrun by this need to find her kid um but even in the midst of that like she's still stuck in the way that max um has like given her like he he is the one that like is dictating what she understands as truth and reality you know, like, mm-hmm. where, like, even in the conversation between her and Tattletail, she's, like, very immediately, she's, like, I, like, you know, the information I have gathered is from Kaiser. Kaiser said this, you know. And then Tattletail mm-hmm. does not use her, her cape name. She doesn't say purity. She says Caden. Like, who are you going to trust yeah. when Aster's on the line, me or Kaiser? Um, which is just really, like, you know, kind of um, this kind of stilling moment, I think for Kaden because she's like I don't know like I don't I don't have any other you know input of information besides him you know but then she's like she's worked with Tattletoe before she kind of sees who she is um but she's also a stranger yeah but she's still a stranger and so you know that's actually a pretty I mean you could you could really you know read into that as like a moment of someone from outside Mm -hmm. that you don't know if you can trust reaching into abusive relationship and seeing if you know they they can pull you out that's not really what's happening exactly no but but it's you could draw a parallel yeah yeah and she does take it and that's a a step in the right direction she gets her child back she doesn't it seems that she hasn't fallen back into trusting kaiser yeah i think this is is kind of that moment where she realizes like she she has her head above you know the trees you know so to speak that she sees you know how much like how much he's influencing the way that she sees like that she understands what's happening i guess like how much he dictates um 
her sense of the world, I think. Yeah. Um, I think so, too. Yeah. And then I had, like, a little side that was um, less about anybody else and more so just about her. Um, that doesn't quite fit, but I feel like it was something to be said. Um, mm-hmm. Is that when she's... Uh, she's really interesting, like, in terms of, like, um, the way that she thinks about herself um, and her role... And then also the way that she holds herself. Okay. Um, right? Because, like, she's she has this power of light, um, so much so that, like, uh, when... I feel like when Taylor's describing it, Taylor's like, you can't quite, like, look directly at it, mm-hmm. you know? So it's it's almost like this... That that's that feeling of, like, you know when, when, like, gods have, like, a... They show their, like, true image or whatever? Yeah. And it's like, if you look at it, you, like, burn up, blah, blah, blah. I feel like she's kind of, like... In her head, she's like, ah, so, like, I, I'm almost kind of like the true image of a god, right? And so she, like, uh-huh. she she holds herself as if, she, as if she has, like, a position of authority, you know? Like, as if she's kind of this, like, reified figure where, where she, when she's talking about the city, she's talking about the city as her city, right? Right. And, like, in the villain bar, even though she's sitting next to Kaiser and kind of in this secondary position, she doesn't speak. She still, like, has her ankles crossed and she's very poised, like, she's very much, like aware of the way that she you know like takes up space and kind of like how how she presents herself to the world um it's it's really like it 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 it's very much a physical representation of the way that she sees herself Mm -hmm. or the way that she hopes to see herself i guess yeah so she doesn't speak at all during the i don't think so meeting huh i don't remember i I I feel like it was just i'm asking um, as that's that would be another sign of you know, abusive relationship, yeah, yeah, quiet because... wife thing. Yeah, I feel like she doesn't. Hold on, let me. Well, if some, if if she does, someone will correct yeah, us. I'm yeah, yeah, sure. hopefully. So, uh, but either way, she doesn't speak a lot. Yeah, so. yeah, she doesn't. It's very yeah. Yeah, even though she almost used herself as independent. But yes, so this kind of view of herself as as this light. I mean, kind of for the city, mm-hmm. sort of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, even it's very much. It's, it's very like entitled of like. Yeah. Or being like, oh, this is my city. You know, I get to decide, like, how it's supposed to be, who's supposed to be in here, blah, 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 all of this, you know. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. She's a, she's, she's not, like, super dynamic in these, in these, like. Yeah, in this, in this eight in this, arcs. In yeah. these eight arcs. Um, but I feel like at the end um, of the seventh arc, there's definitely, like, um, there's definitely potential for growth mm-hmm. and, like, movement. Yeah. But then it's also, like, what will happen you know, like once, like what's going to happen if, like, she could be a problem later if she has that, like, realization that her second kid isn't going to be like this, like, if her, like, you know, when the kid grows up and it's inevitably complicated and complex, like the control that she has over that, I don't know, I, I feel like, yeah, and and uh, just to to point out that uh, Kaiser's dead now. That's true. That's uh, true. So she dies free during of her... during Leviathan. Yeah. Um. She's free by external circumstance. Yeah, yeah, um, and we might see how she grows during that. Yeah. yeah. So she, yeah, she has like she has the potential to to grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing I, I realized over the uh, course of this is so she talks about when she's talking with uh, Max, she's like, "I'm fighting crime," mm-hmm. and he's like, "Well, you're not fighting any of my gang, you know, the yeah, other he, horrible like, gang in the city." Yeah, and then she's like, well, I couldn't fight my old teammates. And, like, fair, but it that's another example of her not really being able to throw off all of the relations of the past, right? Yeah. Just because, like... But she even, like, 
I don't remember if it's in that moment or later on when she's describing like different types of crime, but she's like, mm-hmm. I feel like she she uses the term "fucking civilized" to de- yep. to yeah. describe the crime of like white criminals, um, just like in general, like even beyond Empire eighty eight. And it was just yeah, and it's so wrong. Yeah, like it's, it's like the 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 next. The a couple of trips before was the Victoria and Amy one, right? Where we learned that a white supremacist like just beat the shit out of a woman yeah, for like no it's, reason. It's it's such a it's such a falsehood. Well, um, the reason was racism, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It it doesn't ring true at all. And and later on, we see some some more members of Empire eighty eight going to shoot uh, Rachel. Right? I mean, they yeah. run dogfighting rings. Like it's just like <laughs> the the like the linguistic barriers that she puts. Yeah between her methods and Max's, like, are so arbitrary that, like, they mm-hmm. crumble so, like, so quickly when, like, yeah. the underlying beliefs are kind of, like, articulated in in yeah. more, you know, in a more, like, complete way than that kind of, like, covering kind of language mm-hmm. that she uses. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. An unfortunate individual. Very yeah. much so. What do you think is going to happen in the future with her? Do, do a very, very small speculation. Yeah, I, um, I... Definitely feel like she will come back. I do wonder about her kids, um, because mm-hmm. it's not just her that's free of um, Kaiser, right? It's also... So, well, specifically yes. Theo, I guess Astrid doesn't really yeah. like have that much. She's just, she's just a baby, but I don't know. I, I can't tell if she, like, she she could really go any which way. Like, right now, she doesn't she doesn't fit into, like, the kind of the, the um, I guess, like, social logics of, of the, like, cape you know, the hero-villain dynamic anymore because she doesn't have, like... She can't really, like, return to Empire 88 because it's in a bit of disarray, you know? Is there anything else we want to talk about with... about purity? No, I think I got through. I think we've well articulated the subject. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so that is our uh, character studies. We are going to move on first. Uh, before we get into the essays, we're just going to talk about our favorite moments. Um, so just to put a, a break in between these, these very yeah, long... Uh, more meandering kind of conversations. Yeah, so, just like a quick uh, yeah, little... just, yeah, just we'll we'll talk about what were some of our favorite moments in the last eight arcs that we just didn't get a chance to talk about because it's not like super thematic, but it was just nice to read. Yeah, um, or just concept and stuff like that. So, uh, Clarence, what do you want to talk about first? Okay, so both of mine are kind of um, like visual, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first one uh, was kind of in the moment in the moments after, I think. After Brian was, like, having the conversation with Taylor about, like, um, costumes and, like, building costumes. And now he's kind of like, oh, I would be interested in that. And we also have the space for you to, like, store your bugs beneath the apartment. Yes. Um, and she... The, the loft. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just, like, ju- like, just the visual of, like, an entire space filled with just bugs on yes. standby. Just well, kind specifically of, Black Widows, Yeah, like, right? that's so terrifying I mean, she also stores me. her other bugs, but... Yeah, but also well, is a beautiful like that's so wonderful. It's <laughs> so wonderful. I could I can picture the the shot as it goes through, and she has to space them out so they're not eating each other. Yeah, it's um, like it's so it's it's a really like fascinating kind of visual. If there. we're talking about uh, collections of bugs, there's also there's there's two other moments that I would like to draw your your eye to, mm-hmm. Clarence. Uh, when they go to rob, rob the bank. They fill the van, two vans, right? Yeah, I think. yeah. Two oh, whole that vans. That was so much. Just packed just, to the brim oh. with bugs. That's 
a lot of that's bugs. That's so many bugs. Because bugs are small. They are like that's I a lot of bugs. I think that's so surprising. In, like immediately, kind of getting into like the like fights. Um, mm-hmm. It's just her ability to like accumulate that amount, like that amount, like yeah. that mass of bugs. You know, I, I bet Wildbow looked up like what is the biomass of bugs in a given area, yeah. and probably just like just said Taylor picks that whole thing up. That's so. so wild. But then also, like, it makes me think about, like, you know, like, I mean, we have, like, common problems with, like, cockroaches or, like, those funny little white ones with all the little, you know, legs and, you know, like, you know, bugs <laughs> that just kind of, like, exist. I, uh-huh. You know, like, I have, yeah, I, I have have one that's, like, I have this spider that lives underneath my, um, like, my VHS, you know, bookshelf. Uh-huh. It's just, like, I, I exist. Like, I coexist with all of these small creatures and occasionally the they die. statistic that you're almost never more than like five feet away from a spider or something like that i have not heard that statistic and that is horrible <laughs> oh my god why would you why would you share that ah yeah well How am hey, I to sleep? it might be more than five feet so <sighs> horrible yeah yes which is yeah that's yeah uh, i'm so both the, like the, just incredibly the, uh, fascinated by bugs and also just there's so much I had I, I I saw some two really cool bugs recently. I'm going to send you pictures after. Hmm. They're, they're they're cool. You'll like them. I like. Cool um, bugs. <laughs> and then there's the other part where Taylor, uh, because she doesn't have her mask, pulls bugs all over oh, herself. Oh my gosh! I totally forgot about that one too. That was really ah uh, gross. Yes, but also like cool. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, for sure. Just uh, you know, because like you think about like they're like you know practical purpose of bugs where they're like oh we do you know we eat this or we you know sting this blah 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 but it, just like the the like you know versatile vers- vers- versatility of bugs mm-hmm. yeah you know ah very ah so it, interesting it's also it's just got to be terrifying to just see like bugs intentionally move onto someone's face just to sit there yeah yeah because yeah. i mean we're we're from like her perspective right we don't really yes. see what it's like from like other people very often mm-hmm. um which i think i think that's why even though there's like a whole lot of other mess that happens um when when taylor's kind of like on the you know with her back broken and all of this and you know uh, and but like just like the little pyramid of cockroaches kind of going up and down, like that's so interesting yeah yeah it's kind of like a yeah. time passing sort of thing yes um so i i, I want to bring up uh, another moment mm-hmm. uh and then We'll bring up another one of yours. Uh, so during the Leviathan fight, right, there's uh, Trickster switching out Clock Blocker inside uh, the, the the bubble of water. Mm-hmm. Yes. So uh, Trickster, uh, or Clock Blocker is, is, it just froze Leviathan and he's unconscious in a bubble of water. And uh, Taylor gets the attention of Trickster, points at Clock Blocker, Clock Blocker tells him to get it out. And uh, Trickster goes, uh, he, he looks at a, the body of a hero. Mm-hmm. He says, I apologize for desecrating your body, brave hero. He spoke, looking down at where the cape with the trumpet icon on his chest had flopped. Dead. You do good work, even in death. And Taylor thinks he's fucking crazy, but, like, that's not... I mean, it's a little bit dramatic, I but, mean, like... Yeah, but it's also, like... It's 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 meaningful. Yeah, like, yeah. you're acknowledging... in So often in, in battle, they're, like, the the treatment of bodies is just, you know, absolutely horrendous. And I think yeah, Taylor's already viewing that body as like a tool. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I think yeah. I think taking and, the moment to kind of like you know honor mm-hmm. death in in a space that does that would not usually be able to. I think that's really like 
beautiful. Yeah, especially when when Trickster, you know, he he switches objects, right?、Mm-hmm. So the body is a tool. It, That's very like, true, and it's a very good tool because it, if he wants to switch people, which you it's probably the main thing you want to switch, right? Is a very good thing for that.、Yeah. It, I, I'm sure in this this battle, he switches bodies like a lot.、Mm-hmm. Um, but so is the implication that he does that often? That he like kind of yeah, or or maybe he's been avoiding it this whole time. I don't know. Actually, that's a good question. So, what is your next moment, Clarence? Okay, my next moment is also kind of like a visual one.、Um, but when、um, when Taylor and Brian are out,、um, that when they go to the mall, I think right. I feel like I I don't remember where they are in space、mm. because all I can remember is that Taylor is wearing ha- her costume but only half on. And and wearing a、mm-hmm. crop top, and then kind of like has the the top of it tied like a jacket.、Um, yes, around her waist. Yeah,、yes. around her waist, which is just absolutely iconic to me <laughs> in my head because that is that's so cool. Just as like a visual, you know, kind of walking around that like you you don't you don't really think about that, I guess, about like wearing half a costume, but it just it just seems so like.、Mm-hmm. While this would not be ordinary, it felt ordinary. You know, like yeah, it felt it's, it's, like clothes. I, I, I don't it, think I've ever seen a superhero in a you know Marvel movie do that. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, you know, they they might like they don't even have zippers. Extremely you know? intentionally, they are only wearing one part of the costume, right?、Mm-hmm. Like Iron Man only having like the hand or something.、Uh, but it's never just like casually because you just don't want people to see just half wearing it. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. It was just、uh, such a I, wonderful little like moment of yeah. Clothes, which I suppose you know, it's just to to <laughs> get annoying about it.、Uh, they're both of her new identities. Yeah, that's very true. She's kind of like walking the the line between both of them. Yeah, the new Taylor、yeah. who's cool and has friends, and the new Taylor who is a criminal. Yeah, you know. So, yeah, the, the last one、uh, I just、uh, wanted to to talk about is that that there's that tiny little moment. Um, at the beginning,、uh, when they first start hanging out, where they decide to watch the Star Wars prequels from Earth Aleph,、mm-hmm. and then there's a very small world building thing with about、uh, Professor Haywire, which I think Professor Haywire and like ripping a, a bridge between worlds, I think is almost like the name. The name Professor Haywire really seems、uh, a note of a tone that the rest of arcs one through eight don't necessarily take.、Mm-hmm. Like it's intentionally like silly sounding,、yeah. um, and I think that's kind of a, a another holdover from this other tone that like the beginning kind of had, yeah, and, yeah. and it seems like Wildbo shifted away from it during like the Bakuda arc, I think, because、mm-hmm. um, it got like、four. very serious very fast. Yes, yes,、um, but yeah, just a I thought it was a cool moment. But I feel like that also like kind of feeds into this this like sh- strange duality, I guess, that exists.、Mm-hmm. Especially, particularly for villains, but like for all of the parahumans of this, this kind of you know, like it's it's you know, kind of a spectacle sometimes and kind of gimmicky sometimes, but then so quickly it can like turn you、mm-hmm. know very serious, very violent, very like、um, you know, quite different than than this sort of like you know more like playful, I guess, kind of dynamic. Yeah. 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 Well, all right.、Uh, I think that is what we're going to cover for our favorite moments.、Uh, if you have a favorite moment,、uh, please leave it in the discussion thread so we yes, can hear about、yes. it.、Uh, so let's get into、uh, the first of our essays.、Uh, Clarence is going first. Okay. So、um, actually, what I was talking about kind of like feeds into it fairly well.、Um, 
because I, I will, I've got like kind of two parts, um, mm-hmm. to this. First is, is, um, kind of, you know, examining, um, the status quo currently. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of trace how uh, multiple different individuals kind of break from that and the reasons they do it and the kind of repercussions afterwards and kind of the significance sure. of that. Um, but so, so from kind of the like theoretical aspect of, of, um, where I'm approaching this, um, um, I, I'll be using a lot of different definitions from Foucault. Um, and usually like when you use like literary theory, you don't just kind of like have a theorist kind of in yeah. this like all income. You usually have like a specific text that you're like, here's this particular essay in which this one particular thing, like this particular idea that this theorist, you know, defines and I'm going to, you know, use it in this defined way. Um, but since I kind yeah. of have like a huge, like kind of like a bunch of different things that I wanted to bring up, um, I'm just kind of leaving it as like this umbrella of Foucault. Um, who? Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to tangent off of just like how uh, where where we're getting our stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, for, for those who, who want to start, you know, reading about different literary theories and basically want to know where to start, uh, a really great place um, and how most it, how literary criticism is usually taught is with uh, Terry Eagleton's Introduction to Literary Theory. Mm-hmm. So that is a... Uh, book I believe from 1980 something. Um, is it from? But, I feel like it's so, from the 90s, isn't it? Uh, it perhaps. actually that may be this just the second edition. Yeah, I think so. I think the original was like 85 or yeah, something. Yeah. Uh, I should probably look up the actual date before I, I say <laughs> You're just it on kind air, of, but, you know. Oh well, we're already here. <laughs> here we so, are. Uh, yes. So he wrote basically a history of literary criticism and how it's evolved from where it became kind of. A field of study in basically the 1920s. Mm. I, I think that's right, right? Something like that. Uh, with uh, new criticism and the formalist movement yeah. and uh, kind of uh, tracing uh, the development of ideas throughout the decades and the aftermath. Uh, so we are now post, you know, his his writing. I think the last thing he covers is psychoanalysis, which is actually come, invented beforehand, but yeah, yeah. started but being applied. But it's just applied. like the way that people... Yeah. Sometimes they would use it. So, like, um, some of the stuff, like, um, I, I saw in the Discord, I think, was, mm-hmm. yeah, um, uh, somebody was talking about um, uh, Judith Butler's, like, gender theory, where it's, yes. like, people, a lot of, the, like, the theories, it's not necessarily, like, you're reading the entire theory and you're kind of, like, using it as, the, like, looking back and forth between the theory and, and um, the text. It's more of, like whatever the theory is talking about, like with specifically about, um, if you think about like with gender theory, it's like kind of this like, um, uh, articulation of, of like gender as like a social construct and, um, kind of how we form particular identities through language and through behavior through like, you know, all these different aspects. Um, so if you take that and kind of like read through a text with that in mind, thinking about like, how does the author, um, kind of like articulate, this specific, you know, identity or like, how do they kind of put this together into this particular individual? All the, you know what I mean? Where it's like, um, it's more of like, we use these theories as, as like lenses rather than kind of, um, like, um, they're, they're not necessarily like straight up guidelines yeah, of how yeah. to, to analyze a text. Um, yeah. They're, uh, they don't make some, like a list of are. like, here's how to, yeah, that's true. More of like so the structuralism, specifics. for example, 
and and formalism are very much like, hey, this is how you should be analyzing literature. This is the correct way, the one correct way. Mm -hmm. Whereas um, we'll we'll get into it later, but with like Marxism, it's like there there is definitely a uh, ideology that would influence other analyses. But you can also just use it like, hey, let's look at, you know, class and, and material conditions and conflict and power dynamics and use Marx Marx's definitions and stuff like that to understand what it's what's going on here. Yeah, yeah, it's just um, like a way to like kind of look at particular aspects. Yeah, so uh, just just to finish off, uh the uh, introduction to literary theory, uh I'm pretty sure you can find the PDF online. I don't yes. know if it's Isn't it? It's open access, right? I, I think so. I think so. Uh my when I google it, it's right there and it. I don't have to go to the pirate bay or anything. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's 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 okay to use. Uh, there's there's two. Make sure that you don't just read the introduction to the introduction to literary theory. There's actually a whole book, um, but it but it's it's pretty good and it talks about a lot of ideas. It, and, and something just to mention is that even though some like schools of thought are like older, mm-hmm. like new criticism is kind of sort of the first ish. I mean, it's complicated <laughs> because you bring back old ideas anyway. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's it's probably the kind of standard. I, I think I would point at uh, Scott and Matt's We've Got Worm as pretty much like formed. Like what you're taught in school, in, in high school and stuff like that, in w- w- when you're taught how to a- analyze a work, you're usually, it's usually coming from a formalist place, which is like look at look at the text text from within the text mm-hmm. and then there's a lot of other theories later on that kind of mix with that like reader response stuff and anyway i'm getting lost in the weeds here but the point is um that even though something is older does not mean that it's out of date or, or does not mean that it is out of date or anything like that yeah, so. yeah. but all right um we've 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 delayed a bit let's get into uh your we, i keep calling them essays but they're not really essays yeah, I exploration feel like, yeah maybe. like we could say exploration we could say you know like topic or like thematic wandering who knows could be any of them i'm, I'm gonna call them exploration but thematic <laughs> wandering is a good um this is a good title as well yes but okay so I'm going to explain Foucault first, just a bit, just so we know who he is, even though he's kind of hard to explain. Um, he's like a French philosopher, Michel Foucault, I, um, and I think he's the one who describes himself as a historian of ideas. And I think also, I don't remember where it is, but I feel like he also describes himself as an archaeologist of ideas, um, because he does a lot of like, you know, kind of um, excavations of um, different individuals and kind of like combing through uh, different kind of like records and everything um, and some say he's like a literary theorist but I feel like it's more of like he kind of you know straddles a few different like social science fields and all this yeah um, which is fairly common when when you're talking about literary theor- yes, theorists right yes, the Marx, so often. when he's writing about you know when he wrote the manifesto was not talking about uh, literature specifically yeah, yeah. he was not trying to um and there's a lot of others that w- that we look at, le- at like that like freud when we do psychoanalysis also was not looking at literature specifically and, and those are when we take we take concepts basically from philosophy more or less uh, i i don't want to say philosophy because then they get like kind of pretentious but yeah i feel like the like the f- the the like field of study of like literary criticism and literary theory like i feel like people just kind of like wandered through the rest of like the humanities and just kind of like 
picked up <laughs> yeah. some things along the way. You know, we're kind of like putting them in their basket. They're like, well, we can use this. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then hopefully bring it back as well. Yeah. Changed and, and altered. So um, a lot of a lot of literary theories, especially in the the structuralist and post-structuralist, are actually like linguists and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. In addition to other sections because you know language defines what our world is so how we understand language is kind of how we understand the world so yeah yeah they're kind of intrinsically tied up yeah so sorry continue oh no it's perfect all right um okay so before we start you know into the you know um more kind of like piece by piece well i i have a couple of definitions um before we kind of like look at when when the status quo is broken i want to look at like the rules that kind of tentatively hold everything together um, in this kind of hero-villain dynamic um, through a couple of different people, um, but like specifically like the cops and robbers um, thing and then a description, sorry, the cops and robbers description by Lisa and then um, a little bit of like what Taylor's, how Taylor articulates it and then like a legend speech. Um, But so the, some of them like sometimes later on, like I'll refer to the rules as like social logics. Um, but that's kind of, it, it's, it's a very similar meaning of like particular actions, behaviors, et cetera, all of this that are allowed or prohibited, um, within this community, um, that like when taken holistically kind of like, uh, they make up the community basically of capes of parahumans. Um, they're, they're kind of what frame the, the hero villain dynamic, all of this. Um, and, and, um, when you take it with also like kind of the space, uh, like the spaces that that um, these conversations and interactions between like uh, heroes and villains and between villains and villains, all of this, you know, like the villain bar, um, like the wards interacting, all of this, like all these different spaces um, combined with all of the like actions, conversations, all of this kind of makes it, makes this whole group into um, like a discursive community. Um, you want to define discursive community? Yes, I shall. Okay, so a discursive community, it's its kind of rooted in this concept of discourse, um, uh, which is defined in a variety of ways, but I feel Foucault specifically um, kind of defines it with, um, there's like a few different things that are very important about, uh, that must be, that must be present in order to kind of uh, classify a community as, as like a discursive space. Um, one is that there has to be body of knowledge. Um, and the knowledge is produced by, uh, by power, um, which power is also like a whole nother kind of mess or not really Mm -hmm. mess, but like the thing that like Foucault kind of grapples with for like the entirety of throughout his writings. Right. Um, and it kind of like shifts and changes based on like, like what he's talking about. Um, in this Mm -hmm. specific, um, context, uh, we're going to think about it in, in terms of like who has the ability um, to take action, right? This sort of like agency kind of thing. Who has the ability to take action? Who has the ability to decide that the knowledge um, is, is to be kept and sorted and, and, and um, used, right. And, and kind of recorded. Um, And so, which is important to note because we see that we see that happening, this kind of categorization of, of um, knowledge um, with the wards where they're kind of like making these like, lists of different people of of different villains when they like after they inter- interact with the undersiders they kind of like debrief and like in that moment they they are kind of participating in this discursive community kind of producing knowledge right to be able to enact 
the mm-hmm. yeah, in for, action for the very reason later. of yeah, yeah. Um, of another interaction. Yeah, um, uh, related to that, just as another example from the story, I think Tattletales are very. She, I mean, she ends up having a lot of power, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, it, and it's just from information. Yeah, it's the fact that she has all of that. Um, yeah, the which I, that's a that's also a very interesting thing because while she does have like power from the knowledge that she produces um she she doesn't fit into the like the you know the institutional power i guess because she she um i would say she's she kind of fits within like the villain dynamic right yeah definitely um, but then she fits into the middling villain dynamic of of the one you know pop, property theft property damage theft you know what she's describing in her cops and robbers um kind of explanation where she she sees it as only like kind of you know um like low grade kind of villainy right yes and it's like it's not too bad you know it's not it's not you know abnormally violent or abnormally like a damaging mm-hmm. um which uh which is why like that's why the that kind of dynamic can continue that kind of that like this sort of controlled illegality or like delinquency yeah. kind of like feeds into um this dynamic of heroes and villains um where like yeah it's acceptable yeah 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 where that that specific type of villain is like needed in order to justify the hero's presence right um and then also like kind of produce these particular effects these positive effects of like city commerce and like the interaction between the heroes and villains like that produces knowledge um on both sides of of each other and kind of like this cataloging that happens like within the database and then also just like within each individual group and like each individual person um they're all kind of like the database is is kind of like a parahumans online hmm? you're, yes you're yes about yes yes parahumans yeah. online sorry um is this kind of space that like elicits um like elicits the production of knowledge and like th- this sort of um gathering of knowledge of not just not just like the people in power but like everybody so it becomes like everybody has this this available resource about the community that's kind of like almost like feeding into the way that things are operating, kind of continuing that sort of status quo. Also, sorry, I skipped over the controlled illegality, which I wanted to yes. um, define. Um, so in, um, in Discipline and Punish, uh, which is one of Foucault's um, books, and in which he kind of like describes the kind of... Um, the more like spectacular uh punishment of of like um a central authority like a king and where like there would be like a vis a, a visible um you know kind of over correction over overproduction of of violence um to in, make a point yeah to make a point whereas like now there's more of like this this kind of you know working on the body like daily to kind of govern behavior and kind of yeah. feed into this kind of like specific this kind of this um, like normalization of, of behavior and action and thought, mm-hmm. um, but so within all of that, the way that that um, delinquency, the way that like controlled illegality kind of fits into that, um, is that the the like delinquency solidified by like a penal system, by like you know the prison system centered around around the prison. Uh, which, by the way, if you read Foucault, like the prison is like literally everything. Um, right. So. Delinquency thus represents a diversion of illegality for specifically, for specifically, um, 
like the illicit circuits of profit and power of the dominant class. So like what he's saying here is that the presence of like there is a necessity for controlled illegality to produce those particular effects specifically for the people uh, like the the people within the like institutions of power and that like the system like this kind of dynamic of hero and and villain is is set up so that that you know is continually happening um it's like it's set up that that the power of the villains will never be totalitizing that they will never be able to um fully kind of like realize their their you know vision of i suppose like you know doing good you know you know conquering crime blah 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 all of this like there is a necessity for both of them to like to be present mm-hmm. um yeah so it's it's kind of like the same dynamic of like what happens with like the criminal justice the criminal justice institution and like cops and all of this like justifying themselves um is it like the public need of the institution of like the police is only like present if there are, are you know individuals deemed criminals right if if they solve the problem then they have to go away yes yeah so they're kind of like feeding the system from both sides sort of thing mm-hmm. um yeah it, it this is a this is drawn to an extreme in warm obviously mm-hmm. with without the villains right and without end bringers uh there's no way that they would be allowed to exist right allowed to be be heroes uh like the best thing that they could do is you know stop natural disasters and i don't think that's actually what most of the heroes want right yeah they're just kind of they have their own like different motivations um but like the societal need for them is solely for this which i suppose kind of you know is a whole nother thing to wonder about i mean what would happen if there were no inbringers if there like if there were no villains like what what would these these parahumans do with their powers like how would they fit into society you yeah know, like would, what, what would their be what would their purpose be would laws be even harsher yeah yeah of, uh, like controlling their actions when you yeah with part of the reason with the the cops and robbers is not just because of tattletales you know uh because you know everyone needs a hometown hero and you need villains for that mm-hmm. it's also I, I think tattletale actually views it more like a like a wrestler kind of thing where you need the bad guys and to to make the heroes more interesting mm-hmm. but with the Endbringers, right? There's actual physical necessity to maybe keep some extra villains around. It, don't get rid of all of them because they might be helpful against this this horrible, horrible thing. It's a painful insurance. Yeah, it's kind of like this sort of thing of like them tolerating it, of tolerating this kind of like hero-villain dynamic is that they're just kind of letting both kind of run a little bit, you know, free, I suppose, sort of. I mean, it's still like controlled, but... um in this way that they kind of like allow them to like hone what they can do for like a yeah. larger purpose you know that's kind of right now the the hero and villain in the status quo like there is a dialectical relationship between them this kind of opposing force between them but then like inbringer like inbringers leviathan like exist outside of that above above that dialectical dialectical relationship um which i shall i shall bring up in a moment um, okay. but there was one more thing that i wanted to say about um the oh about um controlled illegality and kind of like the criminal justice system um where uh there was one specific quote that i wanted to read about it where it was like a whole tactic of confusion aimed um to maintain a permanent state of conflict to this you know uh to this was added 
a patient attempt to impose a highly specific grid on the common perception of delinquents to present them as close by, everywhere present, and everywhere to be feared. Um, mm -hmm. So it's like, in order to kind of continue this this status quo of like the dialectical between heroes and villains, um, is that there needs to be this kind of like you could be next. Yeah, there like this this almost like manufactured fear. Um, that kind so of. So I guess the, the the comparison to to real life just yeah, to, yeah. to further drive home the example it is um with like the the 24 hours news cycle and constantly having you know horrific crime and stuff like mm -hmm. that yeah. is not only to the benefit of the the news to you know have more views and more funding and stuff like that but it's also to the benefit of the police to show that they're super necessary and then it it's right around the corner yeah yeah where it's like specifically embedded like even within like the architectures of like like the language that's used to describe um like particular areas like within the city or like just like the way that people f particular institutions like specifically the police frame like the the language that they use kind of like feeds into this like um like almost like you're on the precipice of of something terrible all the time so you need them yeah like when when you go out even in a a a place that has more crime. I, I I'm actually trying to to fight off multiple phrases that I that I wanted to say. I almost said crime ridden, right? Mm, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, so it's, it's like these things that have like been embedded into our social consciousness that like the, they're words that make it seem like it's utterly inevitable. Yeah, if you enter this yeah. area, you will be you know assaulted, and you know there that's a, a chance that it might happen, right? For sure. But it's not as much a certainty as labeling kind of writing off a whole area. Uh, and and Taylor does that as well in in her sections, mm -hmm. in her narration. Yeah, and it sort of uh, it kind of like continues on path like beyond the criminal justice system and kind of like this um, earlier on in in Foucault's you know book of Discipline Punish he's talking about how like the criminal justice functions and like justifies itself where it's like this unceasing reinscription into like non juridical systems so it's like. It, it kind of, like, bleeds into the rest of, like, the institutions, like, different governmental bodies where, like, that fear and, like, that necessity is kind of, like, over and over reinscribed in spaces that you wouldn't even think about it. Um, that, that you wouldn't even think that that kind of fear would, like, be reinforced. Mm -hmm. um, but it kind of, like, gets dictated in, a, in, in each institution, um, which is difficult to trace because it kind of, like... The like distinctions between them kind of get a little bit, you know, blurry. Yeah. Um, but alas, okay. Um, so is that uh, you've set out most of your terms and stuff like that? I think so. I think so. Okay. I think there may be a few more. Like I'll talk about abnormal bodies, but like once we get to um, each individual that like breaks the status quo. Um, but I feel like I had a secondary thing that I wanted to say about um, about legend speech specifically. Oh, oh yes. Um, is that the, um, the power that, like, both the, like, heroes and villains have, like, it's what we were saying before about it being, um, like, about it being productive, is that, like, in the moments of these, like, emergency situations, the rules that have been, like, established, um, in the hero-villain, like, dynamic, um, kind of get, like, lifted, because each emergency situation, like, has its own set of rules, has its own set of, like, social yeah. logics. Um, By emergencies, you're talking about not only Leviathan, but also the other status quo 
breakings with like Bakuda, right? I those are less defined. I think okay. with uh, specifically with Leviathan because it has happened to other cities, like that they knew that they were going like that this could happen at any point so much so that they have like created infrastructures and created um like citywide, you know, um uh like uh measures to um anticipate this to accommodate this um has kind of set it in like it's almost like this overlay over over the city where it like becomes something totally different um and it has like its own sets like set of expectations um where where the distinctions that have been set like those tentative distinctions between heroes and villains like are kind of shattered you know and that kind of like you know that dialectical like we rise above it as well because you know uh, what you mentioned um in our last podcast about like how it's just pair humans and water yeah like it it becomes that and 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 all of those all of those kind of like boundaries um are kind of you know thrown away um right yeah so that one's that one's um i'll get down to it later about how that that one kind of like the the breaking of the status quo in that moment is very different than in some of the other ones mm-hmm. um Yes, so the if we're going to talk about this kind of like success and failure of the status quo, I want to define um, abnormal bodies, these kind of like individuated um, people that kind of step outside of the norm based on their behavior. They're kind of being recognized by others as as like not really fitting in to the 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 ways and like the rhythms of the way that you know uh, we established and, the. And, hmm? uh, I was gonna say, and by abnormal body, you don't just mean physically like. Like just case fifty three, right? You're talking no, about no, no, no. I mean, yes, yes. Yeah, it's 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 like a, a literary concept, but it applies to just like people, like mm-hmm. re- referring to people as bodies. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose. Yeah, I'm not talking about like physicality. Um, it's more of like they are an individual that has been identified um, that does not fit into um, the the like established norm, um, and so much so that people have like noticed and are working to use like the power of normalization to like kind of bring them back into the norm um and so the the thing to note before we like really get into it um is these kind of like technologies of normalization um Mm -hmm. like different things that kind of like govern behavior and dictate behavior and tell us how to behave and like what we should think and where and like um act and like say and all this um those produce abnormality because there has to be like it's it's the same thing of like with the hero and villain like in order to be a hero and not a villain like those linguistic distinctions are are kind of like i am this because i'm not that you know and, and yeah. i'm this because i'm not that it's like uh, it's very much that same defined sort of thing. by binaries yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah so it's like if i am not normal then i'm abnormal um and and this whole concept about like normalization and abnormality, all of that, um, is is from a series of lectures that Foucault uh, gave um, earlier on before his like discipline and punish um, about kind of like the the institutions of like like the medical institution and and kind of like pathologizing of um, difference um, of kind of like of different behaviors and everything. Um, all right, so. Now to get down to all the different people there. So there's like multiple different individuals um, throughout these eight arcs um, that kind of display 
that they have this ability to like read the kind of social logics, manipulate them, and then also break them. Mm-hmm. Um, where, uh, yeah, so kind of break these like specific logics that kind of hold the parahuman like discursive community kind of loosely together, which is something very notable is that these these rules like are very, they're not like set in stone. Um, yeah, I, I think everyone kind of has slightly different definitions of what those rules are and when they get crossed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, because there was um, earlier I meant to note about how there are like specific things that are absolutely not allowed at all of um, specifically of like targeting family and then like revealing um, your like, what is what is the term? It's not like civilian. Secret identity. Yeah, secret identity, but like kind of, yeah, this sort of like civilian alternate self i guess or like secondary self i don't know but like you know the your like non-parahuman name and identity um but so namely these different individuals are um bakuda and then coil twice twice over with different results um and then endbringer sort of but it's kind of like a situational thing and then um later on arms master and taylor and so each take on this like label of the abnormal individual um, the one who kind of like breaks out of the the like field of of normalization um, in order to move others to action, right? right? So whether this action leaves permanent cracks, you know, or fault lines in the status quo um, of the rules, you know, is contingent upon I think um, the relative positionality of who's stepping outside of the norm, like who who has the power to do so without you know suffering the repercussions without kind of being forced back into the norm yeah who who's able to to not get completely smacked down yeah yeah basically yeah um yeah so there's um there's a couple quotes that i wanted to bring up um in terms of the norm is Mm -hmm. that uh it brings with it a principle of both qualification and correction um so it's linked to this kind of positive technique of intervention and transformation right so it's not repressive but productive, you know, repressive figuring only as, as lateral secondary, right? Um, in regard to its central, creative, and productive mechanisms. So the norm, okay. it's not primarily meant to be a repressive uh, force. Mm-hmm. Um, it's meant to kind of produce specific effects and produce, like, specific behaviors. Um, and then also it holds these kind of, uh, like, underlying ways of, of correcting itself i guess so that like whoever kind of you know begins to become abnormal like is kind of like worked back into um which that's what i was talking about before of like the technologies of normalization someone gets worked back into it as a kind of like normalize abnormal Mm -hmm. yeah um yeah so it's like it's working on like that it's working on like the way that we think about ourselves um even when we don't think that it is even when we think that we're being if we're like rebelling, even in that moment, you're rebelling against a force that is normalization. Right. So you've like made the choice to become abnormal. I mean, not that you, sometimes you can't make the choice. Sometimes it just happens, but, um, is that it, it kind of like has become this like, s- not necessarily stable point, um, but definitely like, um, like an articulated, uh, categorization, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So we'll, we'll, we'll begin with Taylor just like a little bit, um, Later on, there's like a a different sort of a, um, aspect, but um, she kind of begins as an abnormal individual um, because she kind of like walks 
the line between hero and villain before she kind of, and even even when she like um initially enters into this kind of like tentative contract with the undersiders like the motivations that she has like her motives are kind of grafted on by the undersiders um because she like sets out to be a hero but then she kind of like is stuck in this kind of like unarticulated point where like she has been classified a villain but then like she doesn't she she hasn't like fully like kind of manifested her like what she was planning to so it's kind of she enters into this space into the into the villain into the hero villain kind of like back and forth um uh yeah in it, a, uh eventually I, pretty quickly on when she just joins the undersiders it's like she doesn't really know what she's I mean, what she's doing she mm-hmm. she wants to turn them in but other than that like what her actual goals are is pretty vague yeah she's kind of like and i think that's that's why armsmaster is like unwilling to believe her heroic attempts um it's because like he sees like he doesn't see that kind of like complexity within her he he like only classifies her as villain in his mind because mm-hmm. he doesn't like he doesn't understand like the the like varying shades i suppose yeah yeah and, i mean for the most of- part for for a lot of it, I mean, she does rob a bank. That's very true. Like things. her actions really like kind of classify her, but at the same in a way time, that she doesn't classify herself. Most of her conflict is against other villains, right? It's against the ABB or it's against Empire yeah. eighty eight for the most part. Um, how how many other clashes with with heroes are there other than the bank robbery mm. and the uh, assault on the the gala at the end? Oh yeah, in arc six. Oh. Are there? Any? I don't. I don't think so. I don't. I don't none think none so. come to mind. So, I mean, she certainly, you know, especially with the second one, does commit more to being a villain. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, in between, she is doing relatively heroic acts. Yeah, it's kind of this like this mix of like behavior versus like motive, mm-hmm. um, which like I mean, Foucault gets really deep into like motive and how that kind of like changed the criminal justice system. Um, this, but then. He also talks about how there's like this kind of grafting on of motive where it's like people don't like it's not really about like what they articulate, how they why they did this. It's more of like what makes sense. Yeah, what makes so sense. It's yeah. like what, what what's not their actual motive. It's, you know, what what was their specific motive to do the specific thing? Mm-hmm. But what is like the motive of the group or the class that they're in for them to do that? Yeah, it's kind of like prescribed to them. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Um. And so the undersiders are kind of that for Taylor. Yeah, yeah. And so she or kind they, of like by by getting the villain label. Yeah, that's she what like she's yeah she kind of gets like taken into the status quo because of that. Um, but then later on with Bakuda, um, she also kind of like she she does you know kind of break from the status quo because she she um, she does not kind of stay within her like territorial bounds, um, which upsets a lot of people that we see in the villain bar. Yeah. Um, and so, she, but she doesn't successfully break the status quo. She doesn't successfully, like, kind of, you know, become an abnormal um, individual and then kind of change the way that things are run. Um, she has to face the wrath of everyone for taking more territory and, like, killing so many people, using terror as a tactic, all of this. Like, everyone else kind of exerts the power of um, normalization over her actions in order yeah, to if kind she of, just like, become her. the leader and continued, you know, just hurting people and maybe killing some people but not nearly as many yeah she would have been within the normal yeah but after that she's kind of like forced to to face the wrath of um of people who whose powers being or whose 
who's um the ones who are benefiting from those like productive effects of that that hero villain dialectic mm-hmm. they're like losing some of those like those material effects of like the commerce and all of this um yeah it no longer benefits society for any of the reasons yeah. that that either legend or lisa outline mm-hmm. yeah in their little yeah. speeches yeah yeah and then also she just as kind of like an aside she talks about like using fear as to be an effective leader um and she kind of like lauds this as like the end all be all um of of like a successful ruler is to to be feared um and not loved which i mean i mean she doesn't say the not loved part but that's but it's something to to think about that that fear cannot be totalitizing like power can't be like external forces on like there's always going to be some sort of resistance um because like there there can never be like this all-encompassing um force which is really interesting because also like language can't be all-encompassing like you can never totally say exactly what you want to say there's always more words there's always more ways to say it which is why our (laughs) why all the podcasts go so long very true very true yeah yeah it, by if you want to explain a four line poem, it's going to take you a lot more than four lines. Yes, yeah. exactly. Like there's so much to be packed in there. <sighs> which which is also fascinating because a four line poem certainly like carries a ton of meaning. Yeah, yeah. And it's maybe it's not even it, it probably doesn't even reach what it's trying to say either. Mm-hmm. Like there's so many gaps in in language that like you can forever be filling all of the void all the voids that are like left. You know. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, anyways. Uh, Bakura, um, when when the like villain bar is kind of like gathered together, um, uh, they're kind of like everyone kind of has like formed this sort of like temporary truce, this temporary like um, you know uh, almost like alleviation, I guess, of of these kind of like you know uh, scaffolding rules, like these social logics, in order to kind of like bring balance back, you know, to the city, to like return to the way that it was previously operating to you know, return to, like, the previous rules of engagement where you stay within your territory and we can all make money, you know? Um, and so she's, like, singled out as this abnormal individual. And um, very interestingly, Coyle is the one that kind of initiates... He's the one who articulates um, the plan. Um, and kind of, like, he's, like... He's the one that points out what the problem is, where he's, like, our problem is that the actions of the ABB are drawing attention to our fair city, homeland security... Military forces are establishing a temporary presence to assist in maintaining order. Um, heroes are flocking to the city to support the protectorate in regaining control of matters is making business difficult. Um, so it's, it's you know, it's very, like, visible that, you know, like, the ABB and, you know, combined forces of everybody, you know, like, um, there's, like, all this exchange of gunfire. They've, like, raided um, the businesses, like, bombed places where um, they think that that the ABB has bombed places that they think, like, other villains have and might be operating, like, there is this kind of, you know, attack on the way things are run, you know, and it's very visible, it's a very visible attack um, that goes way beyond um, the kind of robber's level of criminality of, of, of this, like, controlled illegality into something that is absolutely not controlled at all, um, mm-hmm. which is why everyone else is kind of freaking out, um, because if they bring in um, outside forces to kind of curtail the violence... Um, then all of their kind of, like, unexamined um, controlled illegality may go out the window as well. Right. Like, it's threatened. Um, Yeah, so, you know, everyone, you know, kind of reluctantly teams up all of this, but, like, it's only, like, a temporary, you know, stopping of of the way that things are run. Like, it returns after that. Um, 
So even even both with Bakuda and and with um kind of this the villain bar where like everybody's teaming up, there is like a return to the status quo after both of those. Mm-hmm. Um, which it's interesting to note that Coil is the one that um is like the spokesperson is kind of like you know like he can very clearly like recognize and kind of pull the threads you know around the kind of like embroidery i suppose that kind of makes up the loose rules of the caves like he he knows the motivations and underlying plans of the others um and he knows like how to kind of manipulate them um yeah he kind of really subtly takes control there mm-hmm. by controlling the narrative when he speaks yeah yeah he's the one that like establishes the truce i think mm-hmm. um and he like sets out the rules where it's like no violence, no infighting between our groups, you know, no grabs for territory, thefts, insults, all of this. He's the one that ha- that sets the temporary rules. Right. Um, so then the second time when he does this, when he breaks the status quo um, and reveals all of the personal information of Empire 88 in an email, um, he he breaks one of the like kind of unspoken rules that is like disallowed to be broken. Yeah. You know, that like this is something that he cannot he like none of them will be able to return to the status quo like nobody in empire 88 will be able to return to the way that they were operating before right um it, it's not only that this this rule has been broken and now they need to force it back into the, the to the normal situation the normal situation for them specifically is completely gone mm-hmm. they i mean you can't get a secret identity back yeah you can you can't you can change your name you, you can know. get a new identity but you've lost your original one yeah um yeah, so he kind of, like, he manufactures that, but then when he does that, he knows, like, how Kaiser will respond in terms of, like, this, like, delayed response towards Coyle, like, first kind of dealing with the Undersiders and, like, he, he kind of, like, gambles on on the response of, like, Kaiser in this moment. Um, yeah. Which I feel like is just kind of the way, like, he, this is, like, the... The first step in kind of, I mean, it's not the first step, but like, it's one of the steps in in which he's kind of inching closer to kind of totally, totally breaking those rules, right? So that he can take the city for himself. And it's not, he he imagines it not just as like a villain holding onto territory, but as like rising above that kind of, that dialectical. Um, And he has that, he has that power um, because he has the knowledge Mm -hmm. in ways that, 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 other participants in the discursive community like don't have yeah he has the knowledge of what works and what doesn't mm-hmm. right yeah and not to mention two other really strong source of information yeah yeah with uh dinah and tattletale yeah he's kind of like you know kind of accumulated um certain certain like um like safety nets i guess to ensure that he can like kind of progress without having to face the like repercussions um yeah yeah. But so um Taylor is a second point. Actually wait, just as as a moment of uh, about Inbringer. Um about Leviathan? Yeah, about Leviathan. But I feel like Inbringers in general is that Sure. Like they don't they don't fit into this dynamic like at all at all. Um Yeah. Because they're such a like totally encompassing force that they they require the addressing of an entire community by their presence. Yeah, yeah. Is that any sort of any sort of label that anyone has at all is totally stripped away, um, just by their very presence, like becoming becoming a situation, like in their very existence. Yes. It, as soon as they're present in the system, mm-hmm. right, the entire system has to change immediately to address them. 
Yeah. And it also, it shows who's given authority when the distinctions um, besides parahuman fall away. Yeah. Um, namely, like, the protectorate and, like, legend and how quickly, like, the the relative power that, like, villains who, who you know, kind of control territories, like, that power is moot in the face yeah. of an emergency. Yeah, and, and something to point out is that, like, the, the protectorate... Uh, assumes control but it's like on top of that it's also the strongest pair of humans mm-hmm. on the planet yeah, right yeah. The, the top i mean i the 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 top three the triumvirate right which um we, we've long established right with uh, alexandria and legend and um uh, eidolon I, yeah, um, yeah or eidolon however i'm supposed to pronounce it it's a whole controversy oh, anyway I see. And, but also like dragon as well right known yeah, as the, yeah. the best tinker in the world so it's like not only is the the force of the entire government but it's kind of like the force of the the planet yeah, yeah yeah the authority is not given to necessarily the people in power but it's more of like who has the strength yeah 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 so inbringer the both of the inbringers but specifically leviathan because that's the only one that yeah. we've experienced currently um is just it it it's like a prescribed break, I suppose, of the status quo in the ways that the other one, like any of the other, you know, uh, departures, like of particular individuals um, into like, see, with the other ones, it's like, like Taylor becomes abnormal or like Bakuda becomes abnormal. Like, but, but with Leviathan, Leviathan is not deemed as like an individual. Mm-hmm. Like, um, it's like a event, I suppose. Yeah. Um, which is an interesting sort of, you know, exception to the rules, like this planned for exception. Mm-hmm. Um, but then right after, uh, when this this sort of like tentative hero villain, um, you know, dialectic is sort of returning, um, everything's, you know, kind of begins to fall apart again um, with Taylor and Armsmaster, who who both become abnormal individuals um, in, in arc eight, in um, eight seven, I think, when all of the different like... Um, betrayals occur. Yes. Um, where like Taylor specifically, she she breaks the status quo in the way that that Coyle does, where she sees Sophia, she sees um, unmasked, right? Um, but she doesn't hold the same sort of powerful position as um, perhaps like a hero or or um, Coyle, but Coyle kind of has like a whole other you know kind of mess to deal with. But, yes. Yeah. Um, like she doesn't have the power to to be kind of like brought back into um she she doesn't have the ability to like change the society and to, to change the circumstances to force them to yes to accept her mm-hmm. where coil he makes it so that the his opponents can't even respond yeah, properly yeah. he has he has the power to kind of like change the the rule of play i guess you could say rules of engagement yeah the, the board kind yes, of yes yes yeah. there you go um yeah but with taylor she she's kind of she's so she's broken one of the rules in the aftermath of like this destruction where like there's already a bunch of external rules dictating like what you can do using it to your advantage all of this um that kind of interacts inter intersects with um like the legality of it in terms of like you know being sued all of this um which is a totally you know separate institution right of of like the, the legislation legal system all of this um and when she's faced, when she's faced with the, the like technologies of normalization, where it's like you go to the birdcage, um, yeah, where in the quote they're like, those who violate the inbringer truce are almost always sent to the birdcage. Um, when she's faced with that, 
she takes on this kind of uncontrolled abnormality where she becomes, um, you know, I mean, we don't know. We don't know what will happen, I suppose. I mean, you do, but I don't. But <laughs> the the aftermath of of not being, you know, kind of subsumed back into this, like, norm, I think she's definitely going to have to contend with. Um, because right now she, she has nowhere to go. Um, mm-hmm. She has no place to kind of, like, fit back into. Yeah, she's been she's been forced by becoming abnormal, by having this, like, quasi both hero, both a villain, but in... in not in either group Mm -hmm. she's she's forced out entirely and now she's like on her own she's still i guess technically like a villain right she's gonna be branded that way yeah that's true but uh i mean we don't see a lot of solo villains in these first eight arcs um but it's very much like she's totally on on her own yeah yeah she has no she has no one to kind of fall back into yeah Um, she has no group at all mm -hmm. she's suddenly an individual where uh yeah where, where the others do have some sort of thing to fall back on, some kind of support and, uh, yeah, group, yeah. I, I'm, tr- I'm trying not to say, like, I almost want to say class, which is kind of like what it would be in, in real life, right? The yeah. whole, like, group of, of people that we were supposed to be able to fall back on yeah. if, we're, if society kind of kicks us out. But um, in this, villains are kind of a complicated idea of class where they are a giant group yeah. but it's split into tiny 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 groups yeah, it's difficult so. to kind of yeah. specifically classify um yeah so she's kind of like left in this this kind of like you know vacuum almost where she she doesn't really have like a next step yet um and and she kind of becomes like in terms of like even when she's like leaving we like we already feel the kind of like ripples in in the um like the the visual of like everyone leaving everyone's murmuring everyone's seeing her in this kind of light of of you know um someone who has has taken advantage of the inbringer um truce right and then has has kind of stepped out um instead of kind of facing you know whatever options are given to her and then arms master mm-hmm. is in the total opposite position um in the same moment but he still is abnormal um but he, because he has a position of power that she did not have, um, his is not like his abnormality is not visible to like everybody. Um, yeah, and his abnormality is something that can be dealt with by society in a normal way. He can be forced back into a normal position. Yeah, yeah. Um, which um, we don't know what that is yet. But yeah, we'll see. Kind of, he's, he isn't kicked off to be an individual hated by everyone. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there, there's a moment I think that the interaction um, where he's like he's starting to yell, and then Taylor's like he gets to yell, but I don't, you know. And he's like, we have the authority here. But then Gru says, um, the only authority you have is the authority people give you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something very important I think to note is that he's kind of Armsmaster has kind of like internalized this this power, um, this I suppose this kind of you know illusion of power I would say. Um, as a hero that he like he thinks that he's entitled to this um and as such like has has kind of like thrown away the the rules that were dictating the behaviors that he was you know supposedly supposed to be enacting you know he kind of forgets legends speech there yeah Um, yeah he's he's legends you know main point is this is why society tolerates us Mm -hmm. society tolerates us is is the key thing there arms master you know he he thinks this, as long as I'm fighting, as long as I'm, you know, doing my hero thing, 
then I'm entitled to basically act however I need to act um, when that's not the the, the key point. Yeah, the key point is yeah. to do it on behalf of like the people, right? To, to keep them happy and killing a bunch of innocent, well, not innocent people at all. They're criminals. They're villains. But it's still but like the deliberate. People who are, he's deliberately yeah, who, setting them in the path to die. Um, which is yeah, a whole it, it, other thing of like he's not actively killing them, but he's definitely mm-hmm. setting them up to die, so that yeah. their bodies, like these individuals, have become to him in his mind like killable but not murderable. <laughs> that's that's a I which really is a like very important distinction. Yeah, that yes. I was not the one who came up with that. That I feel like that was definitely Foucault. And if it yeah. was not Foucault, then it might be Burke. But I'm like eighty percent sure it was Foucault because yeah. I feel like I read it like two days ago. Um, I just love that now the word murderable yeah, but is it, in my lexicon. Yeah, but it's kind lexicon. of a distinction um, that, like, the state made, you know, between, like, you know, taking, li- taking life, you know, or, like, you know, giving life. Where it's, like, before it was kind of, you know, we have the power, like, the state has the power, the king has the power to have you executed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then now it's kind of, like, the state has the power to provide you healthcare and to provide you the means to continue living and and provide you like the monetary means and like you know medical and all of this like there, it's like a totally different way of treating um people mm-hmm. um and kind of like the the way that the state kind of like enacts power yeah if we're going to talk about uh, killable versus murderable i think uh i think a great example is basically like I mean, in I, I keep drawing examples to law enforcement, but these are superheroes who are like, yeah, yeah. that's kind of what they do, right? Um, where the, the state is not ever supposed to go to kill someone, yeah. right? They, they're they almost never, except in like, I, I mean, I would just say never, right? Unless if it's like the military, but that's not the same. But even then, it's not, it's not framed in, in a way of like, we're going out in like to kill we're but they frame it in a way of like we're going out to protect uh yeah and and where but where where i want to get oh, sorry, to yes, is keep going. <laughs> you're okay um the the police are never so never at least on on paper supposed to go out to kill uh, uh, anyone um but they are supposed to go and bring them bring them in to uh justice to to to, to face the courts but in the process, they are allowed to use whatever, you know, means are necessary, typically. Um, yeah. Which can include killing them, in which case they could get off or killing, you know, the alleged criminal. And, um, I mean, in self-defense, nominally, but uh, it's still, like, is in their favor and it's still, like, something that they can, I don't, like... Get away with is not always, like, the correct term in this situation, but... Yeah, but they definitely... Um, it, they don't. Yeah, they don't face they use, murder they charges. They use that room. Yeah. Um, yeah, to abuse their power. Right, and that's kind of what Arms Master is doing here. Mm-hmm. Right, in in the face of uh, fighting down one, you know, really really bad threat, mm-hmm. those other smaller threats are totally expendable. Yeah, but then we don't know what sort of like normalization. Like you know, we don't know what how he's going to be. I suppose you do, but we don't see him. Yeah, I can't. We don't, I can't we don't see. Here, so. We don't see how he's treated. Um, that can you know kind of give us a comparison to the way that Taylor's treated. But 
Um, yeah. I mean, in any case, I think it's it, you could probably guess that he's not going to face, yeah, I, you know, I assume that he's, a, a dozen murder charges. Yeah, he's yeah. going to be kind of, they'll just kind of look past it, I assume, and he'll get stuck wherever. <sighs> Very disappointing, but alas. <laughs> Anyway, so my concluding thoughts. Oh, yes, yes. Um, I had a kind of, you know, wondering. Um, oh, because I was talking about how, like, each each individual that we were discussing, you know, each, like, in their own way is able to, like, recognize, articulate all of this, the rules. And each possesses, um, like, a kind of varying capacity to overcome um, or kind of exist above this kind of, like, cyclical inertia. Even if it's just, like, a particular moment or a specific response. Um, but each kind of take that. They kind of, you know are able to break through that kind of, you know, um, I use the term cyclical inertia, which, yes. you know, is kind of how that, how that, you know, feedback loop kind of exists. Yeah. Once, once the cycle start, starts, it, it keeps on yeah, going yeah. and perpetuating itself. Yeah. Um, it self-corrects. Yeah. Yeah. Which that's what the cops and robbers dynamic kind of does. Yeah. It, it not only do the, not only does society, not, not only do, does the law reinforce the uh, cyclical, part but when when something steps out of line all parts of the system work together to put it back into order mm -hmm. um but so i was thinking that that there's um because there's this kind of you know ever-present like resistance to power you know and then also that there's like all of this like physical and economic devastation of leviathan that like we haven't super covered because like it's only been like five days right that from i think so she yes. shows up at the at the memorial um to talk to Lisa is that obviously there's still going to be like a huge amount of, of, you know, rebuilding that will need to happen in the city. Um, that there's this, that, that, um, dynamic I think is like, has been kind of like revealed this, the, like kind of how that like imperfect fault line between the two of them, this like slight gap, slight overlapping, this sort of like the way that it doesn't quite, work mm -hmm. i feel like that's been sort of you know articulated especially particularly in the moment with like arms master and taylor um and then also with kind of coil kind of you know there's no way to return to the status quo again yeah um it's gone just like yeah yeah so we'll, like with, there's with kind close. of we'll need to i mean they'll they'll need to be um something new established which i i i can only speculate about but i i want to also point a little bit out that kind of uh, each one of these these twists away from from the status quo mm -hmm. uh, was not fully resolved. I, the no, Bakuda one no. was, but with Coil, um, I think basically the I mean, purity got her baby back, right? Yeah, but but, but the her, second she's, the she's, second part of that didn't didn't occur before the before Leviathan showed up because yeah, exactly. It, like their their identities are still revealed. Yeah, they, yeah, still we didn't settle like... back into whatever we're going to settle back into. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so Leviathan appears disrupting that. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Like as we go along, there's a lot, like the threads kind of get looser. Um, and then mm -hmm. all sorts of like, it sort of, you know, starts, you know, um, snowballing, I suppose. Yes. That's mixed yes. metaphors, but you know, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There we go. That's, that's literature for you. Um, okay. Anything else you want to. Um, I think that's, I think that's everything. Okay. That was a lot. Okay, so that's the end of Clarence's uh, exploration. We're going to have a little interlude here, um, and then we're going to get into mine. I think I'll try to get mine done on, uh, a bit quicker, uh, just to on, for the sake of time. Um, so here, let's let's talk about romances. That's what I've decided 
we are going to do for this little bit. So, uh, Clarence, uh, what what romances do we want to talk about? Okay, so there's there's a couple of them. I'm going to talk about the kind of I wouldn't call it a love triangle, but mm-hmm. like the the mess that happens. Um, the, the mess that happens in what interlude three, three I think. I think yeah, which is uh, the Ward's interlude. Yes, um, with Panacea. Gallant and Glory Girl. Yeah. So, do you want to articulate what that? Okay. Uh, what what that yes. is in, in your view? Um, it, when I first read this, I was kind of like just kind of interested because I'm like, ooh, drama. You know, I'm always excited about drama. <laughs> you know, but um, when I when I went back and re- like reread it, it it um it kind of like rubbed me wrong. Sure. Um, because like when you start thinking about like the dynamic that's happening right there, like it's just after. Um, so just just for for context for those who haven't read in a while. So uh, in the aftermath of you know the the bank robbery where where Tattletale was like really mm-hmm. bringing out a bunch of dangerous information, so Panacea is kind of shaken. Yeah, and she's kind um, of like dangling goes, this like you know life altering you know realization yeah. that could totally ruin Whatever the only relationship that that um, Panacea like holds dear. Yeah, um, it, she actually has like two threats at Tattletale. She's got, like, one that she doesn't even really hint at what it possibly could be, and then she has um, knowing who Panacea's father is, and that's that's the one that they talk about the most. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah. so uh, she's after... Like, she's all upset about, like, her family and everything right now. Like, she's, she's like, mm-hmm. reeling from this, this, like, you know, close escape of, of like, this possible collapse, right? Um, and then, like, this scene happens... Um, where where he kind of like pulls her aside, and they have this like isolated moment where you know he's checking in, but um, and she's all like kind of mixed up about it, and then he's kind of like, mm, yeah, that's like pretty tough, but then also like you really like me, right? <laughs> um, which like is just kind of like a dick move <laughs> because like she's in this very vulnerable moment, and he's kind of like rooting around in her emotions. And like has definitely sure. like noticed this before, and yeah. I feel like I feel like that's like an unspoken expectation of like of like people who can you know kind of know things. I mean, Tattletale doesn't really like fit into this you know plan that I have this expectation, but like I feel like if there's some sort of inner tor- turmoil that you know without them telling you, you don't have the right to bring it up without them bringing yeah. it up first. Right. You know? Like, yeah. I don't know. That just seems really mean. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. Okay. Um, but I feel like it could, like, it could end up being all right. Maybe. I don't know. Or something, or something interesting could happen of this, of this. I feel like something terrible will, but right. I don't know. Yeah. I'm very mixed up about it. Yes. 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 <laughs> there's, there's so much. There's so much. There is so much. So very much. <sighs> um, Okay, so the the other one I want to talk about yes, anyways. is uh, you know Brian Brian and Taylor, right? Which we didn't focus a lot on. Um, I, I don't want to just rehash what we already talked about, but it's like it's it's such a weird kind of attraction mm-hmm. because like so so I mean Taylor's attraction to Brian is very physical. Like, yes, it is. In in, in uh, I mean we've got Worm like called it description fucking because uh. she just like really really describes him. Um, really focusing on on certain things where she's not like that with anyone else yeah she's very verbose about him yeah that is one way to to put it uh, um and 
she does like his personality, but it's not like why. It's certainly not something to like fall in love over, right? Yeah. That's very clear that that's not what's going on. She's not like I want to talk to you forever. Yeah. Um, that kind of thing. It's just. I, I mean, it's it's one of the few you know uh, real connections she's made, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. So so I think she's just kind of like latching onto the first boy that she's talking to and it's attracted to. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of like she's. I mean, she's not forcing the romance. I mean. No, I mean Lisa's definitely making it like on, but yeah, he like he, he. I mean, he definitely like you know like gives space for her and that sort of thing, and I think yeah. that she like kind of is very appreciative of that. I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, he does also some like he he does some really nice gestures back, right? He has is um I think does he give two gifts or just one? For some reason, I'm remembering mm, two gifts, but he he gives remember. the um the bug in amber, right? Oh yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean that's just like a like a sweet kind of thing, and right? Like, like so when they I mean, meet, there's you that. Know, after her run, like he brings her like coffee and stuff, and I don't know. It's yeah. It, it I so, I feel I like I. It's not that she totally misread everything. I feel like <laughs> I mean she had a supposed mind reader. Yeah, that's true. She yes, she had tell, something swaying her, her this way. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, but I feel like there's a yeah, difference but, between like knowledge that you know, is within someone's mind and, like, something that they have articulated to themselves, Yeah, you know? Uh, um, Something that I I just realized is that uh, they still haven't, like, Brian and and Taylor, after uh, she, you know, did the whole forced kiss thing, kind of using him, kind of being a little gross, Mm -hmm. um, and they had, like, an awkward thing after, right, where he's like, I don't actually like you, um, in in that way. And... uh, so so immediately after that is the Empire 88 stuff. Yeah. And that immediately segues into Leviathan. So that's that has not been... I mean, it's like, you know, how much more can the situation go on? But it's like those feelings are probably not fully, like, dealt with. Yeah, they haven't really, like, come to terms with anything. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> what a mess. Oh, <sighs> man, Taylor. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah. They're, they're, I mean, they're both not super great at romance. Come, Brian, come on. I, you yeah, guys built like, furniture together. Well, what come does he on. think? She came over yeah. in a crop top. Yes, exactly. <laughs> her belly was showing. She never shows her yeah. belly. You know that, Brian. Ugh, Gosh, boys, oh. right? What a mess. Alas. Okay, um, th- so that's that's what we got for talking <laughs> yeah, about romances. Um, I mean, what other romances are are there in this section? I, I you know, there's uh, purity and, and Max Anders, yeah, right? And that's and that's a romance we could talk yeah, about. Yeah, um, great. Yes. Um, any uh, else? N- not necessarily that we're like searching for romances to talk about here. These are the ones we wanted to talk about. Yeah. But um, I don't know. There's a lot the of like of nice, argument. like platonic moments, though. That's true. Yes, there are a good amount of friendship moments. Yeah. Yes. Um, but okay, Anyways. let's get into Ooh, here we go. Uh, my my section. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I'll try to be quick. I know this episode's getting a, a bit long. Alas. So <laughs> I I apologize. <laughs> it's all right. Um, so I'm uh, I don't have a thesis here uh i'm mostly explaining and exploring uh this section of worm through through marxist uh criticism mm-hmm. so uh so a couple th- things a- ahead of time first um using marxist criticism does not make you a communist uh <laughs> also should be noted that um when we use marxist theory uh marxist critical theory successfully on a on a work um that does not mean that the work is communist <laughs> um just just because that the 
work, you know, has a message that you know is is you know helpful in a in a, in a Marxist understanding, um, does not mean that the author is is a is a communist or that the work is communist propaganda or anything <laughs> like that. So please don't call Wadvo a communist. <laughs> That's not the point here. <laughs> um, if you want to know if he's a communist, you need to ask him, and. And you probably won't get an answer because that's, that's obnoxious. Yeah. But this mostly um, just like we use these terms to be able to like read the text in a different sort of way. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The, I mean, the, the understanding of the world is far more complex than what Marx originally yeah, put out. Yeah, very, right? very true. It's a lot more complicated than, than than just that, which is kind of why we analyze theory to understand more more deeply what's what's going yeah. on. So if, if you read, you know, the, the Communist Manifesto, there's actually like a lot more going on than just like, this is how society should work. Uh, he's also establishing like, here's some ways to view society. The the, the main um, thing to focus on here is uh, the material dialectic, which um, I'm looking at uh, Purdue, their online like writing definitions basically mm. um so they have a whole section talking about schools of criticism right um so i'm going to be quoting from that just because they state it in a really easy to understand way mm. so the marxist school follows a process of thinking called the material dialectic this belief system maintains that quote what drives historical change are the material realities of the economic base of society rather than the ideological superstructure of politics, law, philosophy, religion, and art that is built upon that economic base. Um, so uh, that's, I think, coming from Richter, mm. which is another theorist. So basically what, what that means is rather than uh, society and like uh, history in general being driven by religion or like different ideologies or like nations as like uh concepts of like as as ideals mm, yeah uh, like the way that um it views it is that basically what what is the 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 material conditions that led to you know whatever conflict or what are like basically um everyone's own like self-interest right so you you look at like a more uh, uh a What's what would be the defi- definition for that? Capitalistic, I guess. Mm. Uh, notion of everyone working for their own uh, self-interest, yeah, right? Yeah. It's more. And, like but you apply that to an entire, yeah. But you apply that to an entire like an economic class, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, so just as an example of where you know Marx, Mar- uh, Marxist history, right, would would differ from a more like just narrative kind of history, right? Is if you look at like um, in the eighteen 18- no, in what in the 1630s, I believe, right? There was um the was it the Thirty Years' War, I think, but it was basically a bunch of like religious wars going on, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, in the wake of the Protestant Reformation, mm-hmm. and so the narrative would be that these are happening because of you know just religions facing each other, yeah, right? Yeah. And um trying to you know going against the Catholic Church, trying to create their own thing, and the Catholic Church responding and those countries on different allegiances responding in those ways. Well, that's certainly true on a level. Marx, uh, Marxist historians would point at that as uh, looking at how a lot of the like Protestant sides were actually like more closer to like peasant revolts and stuff like mm-hmm. that, and people actually using this as an excuse to take back the wealth of Catholic uh, churches and yeah, stuff like yeah. that. Um, anyway, I'm going off on a big long tangent, but the point is, is that it's just a, it's a different way of of viewing history and viewing the motivations for why stuff happens. 
Um, so the way that we could use this <laughs> is by looking at what are the material conditions of like characters in stories. Uh, the other part from the Purdue website is uh, Marx asserts that stable societies develop sites of resistance, contradictions built on into the social system ultimately lead to social revolution and the development of a new society upon the old. So Marx says basically that uh, revolution is inevitable and it's going to be led by proletariat. Um, so, quote, the, this cycle of contradiction, tension, and revolution must continue. There will always be a conflict between the upper, middle, and lower working classes and that this conflict will be reflected in literature and other forms of expression, art, music, movies, etc. So, mm-hmm. basically, um, the the point there is that the this this class conflict is always, like, it because it's a fascist society that, like, always exists, like, ends up existing in other representations of society as in like art music movies fiction Mm -hmm. um uh, basically anytime you describe society it's class conflict in some kind of form uh is in there right yeah even if it's not how we define the classes in our the real world yeah yeah i feel yeah there's always there's always like i feel like it's even if there are like different distinctions or different like um you know definitional um classifications i think there's always an element of of um economic you know division i think yeah and in... it's not just like just just wealth it's also like uh who who's in charge of the other person mm-hmm. right yeah. any any time there's any kind of revolution and any uh, kind of story there's there's some kind of like my conditions are worse um because of this other yeah, group yeah. right so there's there's a lot of ways to actually use Marxist uh, critical theory to look at literature, and there's there's kind of several avenues here. You could look at you know what is the author's you know like what is their position, what is their history, and like why would they be writing this? I'm not so interested in that. Um, mostly, I mean, I I don't want to go into Baldo's history, and, yeah, yeah. like that's not my purpose here and, it, and that's mostly more relevant for people writing more like specifically political pieces mm-hmm. um but you could also just like look literally at like what are the classes of the characters um and uh, you know where where does conflict arise and how does it arise and what are the power dynamics between those classes um it also just to take another step forward of like why we would want to do this is because we can learn how uh, these kind of conflicts exist in the real world and how to better deal with them and maybe healthier and more successful ways to, to, to deal with that. Because yeah. um, there always is this, this kind of conflict. Um, and you could also even abstract it to like other kinds of conflict. If, if you don't, if you're not, you know, viewing, uh, society in the Marxist view of everything coming down to economics, you can still apply this uh, kind of uh, interpretations uh, to look at how just any kind of conflict is resolved. So that is that is basically the terms. I don't have as many quotations because um, Marx kind of really goes at length to yeah. explain things. It's kind of hard to pull Extended. out specific quotes sometimes. Yeah. Uh, not that, you know, Foucault is any better, but... Oh my gosh. All of these, uh, all of these theorists just kind of... I mean, I, they don't ramble. Like they're very, you know, concise and and you know, uh, tight in their arguments, etc. But like, there's a lot of talking. There's know, a writing. lot of talking. Yeah. Yes. Um, so uh, I thought that we would we could look at um, 
I mean, first of all, what are the classes of the characters mm. and where do they lie? And then kind of extrapolate what can that mean? So um, let me get out my notes. So uh, just kind of starting from the beginning as we're introduced to characters. Uh, so we have Taylor, right? Mm-hmm. And we have her father, right? Her father is uh, a union spokesperson, right? That's yeah, kind yeah. of pretty clearly of where his allegiance is, right? He wants to rebuild the ferry, which will allow the poor uh, to go to the poor side to go to the rich side, right? Mm-hmm. And ideally revitalize the economy, bring back jobs, etc. Um, and basically give these people a, a, a better life. Yeah. Um, and so he's not even, he's, you know, he's not like, uh, he's not a communist at all. No. Which is, yeah, but he he's is. He's just kind of. Um, yeah, he, he's not seeking a, a revolution. He's just, but he is a actor in this class conflict, yeah, right? Yeah, um, And so Taylor kind of internalizes that. You know, eventually she goes to Coil and articulates that as her, you know, desire, even if she's, you know, kind of lying, sort of. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, she's not like, lying but it's not her true motivation um yeah it's kind of like she does care about this thing yeah um so uh do we the rest of the undersiders as well are um i mean kind of by nature of just being villains kind of end up being poor mm-hmm. um it yeah um it, a lot of them are I, I mean all of them are people who like the the, the status quo has failed them yeah, um yeah. It, like brian it, his this the status quo is not allowing him to help his sister mm-hmm. who's in a terrible situation yeah. um the, the lisa i think i mean she was on the run it seemed um or something yeah it seemed um, like she hadn't really uh, particularly because of her behavior it didn't seem like she had interacted with yeah people very often uh rachel had also been completely filled by society she was homeless um, um among other things um and uh, Alec is also not attached to um, anyone as well. They're they're kind of all orphans. Yeah. But which is huh. I mean they're not, but yeah. Um, so so that's those are you know the, our our main you know, core of people. So looking at uh, other looking at more groups now, mm-hmm. right? Um, the the main one we want to look at right is the protectorate, right? And and the wards um, who are pretty like clearly kind of aligned with the um interests of of you know a more bourgeois side right yeah yeah um it's described that they like i mean if you look at the city right there's this stark divide between rich and poor mm-hmm. right the boardwalk is run by these extra judicial enforcers yeah. oh right gosh, so it's kind of like the law is yeah quite a the, quite a shocking like you know scene i think yeah, and it's like totally okay for them to just beat up any homeless person like that's that like arrives. So horrifying. Yeah. yeah, and that's not only it's not only tolerated by the law, but it's also tolerated by these heroes, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's like it, the boardwalk is obviously you know it. There's multiple times where it described how like they sell dresses that are you know thousands of dollars, mm-hmm. and it's it's a place for bourgeois people. It's yeah, not a place yeah. for working people to go. Uh, the place where working people are supposed to go is the docks, which is described as a place ruled by gangs and uh, all sorts of uh, pretty bad stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a couple other places, uh, you know, to to look at, you know, of class of the heroes, Arc Six. They are holding a gala, with the rich, right? Mm-hmm. It's the the who's who of 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 Brockton Bay. With you know, they're looking at tickets, and tickets are hundreds of dollars. Um, Gracious. Basically, yeah, everyone there is 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 wealthy, mm-hmm. and that's who 
the the heroes are supposed to be hanging out with, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose that kind of like feeds thing. back into this whole concept of like that dynamic is like producing those like those positive, you know, productive, you know, things, but only specifically for the dominant class. Yeah, is that? Yeah, it's really only. It, it exists to benefit them. Yeah. And, I mean, this is where it gets a little bit, especially when we're working with fiction, but even in real life, it, the what classes are gets really complicated. Yeah. Um, the, the most base definition of, of bourgeois proletariat that like I like most that I understand the, the best is that uh, the proletariat are selling their labor. Right. And the bourgeois are uh, purchasing and exploiting that labor. Right. Um, and that's how profit is made etc and so like the heroes are i mean parahumans in general you can view them in all sorts of different ways you can assign them in different classes and in an essay i wrote for for a a literary criticism class i um put both of them together as the proletariat because they're all working for stuff that's spoilery and i can't talk about but um you 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 can uh, interpret them in, in in different ways yeah um so but even though the heroes are like technically, you know, they're they're employed, right? They are not exploiting someone else's labor, really. They are working for the interests of the bourgeois, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and perpetuating that class conflict. I mean, anytime you, anytime someone's like, uh, there's a conflict on behalf of the government, right? Um, you you have to look at what is the hegemonic class of that government, yeah, yeah. and uh, in our modern day society and in the society of worm that's the bourgeois right that's the uber rich that can influence stuff um so it's also yeah um, so basically oh, go ahead in terms of like who has power in both in both you know the boardwalk and then also um like down like at, at the docks like neither is a governmental force mm, you know that's a good point um which is an interesting sort of like overly i think that they like because we don't really see we don't see like the like regular cops running around very often yeah i mean so that's something we articulated um in the overview mm-hmm. episode that we almost never see like normal crime fighting going yeah. on so yeah yeah mm-hmm. um all right sorry continue <laughs> um so uh just on on some other a- examples that i'm pulling out for for heroes right um who else is at the gala uh emma mm-hmm. right um Who's a a bully, but her father is a lawyer, right? Yeah. And who else has a parent that's a lawyer? A uh, glory girl, right? Mm. So these are both people that, because their their parents are part of a. I mean, again, this is, gets complicated because like lawyers aren't actually bourgeois, but they are. They work on kind of behalf of the interests of the bourgeois, yeah, right? Yeah. Um. They. Because their 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 parents have this this privileged position, they get to get away with some pretty horrible stuff, mm-hmm. right? And again, Glorigal, the guy totally deserved it, but yeah. in other cases, maybe not. Um, uh, and then we have some other you know heroes that are that are pretty awful. Uh, we have Arms Master and and Sophia. They both are terrible people, but because they're working on in from this privileged position, they get to get away with stuff, or at least the appearance of getting away with mm-hmm. stuff. Um, yeah, um, just some small other examples of class conflict, right? Um, the, the, the villains are working in their own self-interest. They rob a bank, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they don't, you know, uh, target people of their own class because there is no wealth to be had there. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, obviously there's also plenty of places you could complicate this or even contradict, right? Um, I'm specifically 
you know, not looking at Empire 88 because that's a really complicated yes. thing. I, I think you couldn't, it would be difficult to classify all villains as proletariat. Yeah, they're they're um, kind of like, they've got like um, a different sort of classification, I suppose. Because there's like yeah yeah it's it's more than more than just like kind of a blanket yeah sort of thing. and I mean where it gets even more complicated is that like it, it, the the class of the uh, leaders of, of Empire eighty eight are actually bourgeois yeah. Kaiser is like the CEO actually and then Coil I mean, Coil really... can like Coil can like buy out um, some of the like you know city council candidates yeah. I think is what he was talking about yeah is that he has that like monetary power yeah so we have two two groups of villains here that are like not only in their their villain identities because they're you know the head of an organization they're exploiting the labor of their you know powered individuals Mm -hmm. underneath um but uh also in their civilian identities also they are bourgeois yeah yeah kaiser's leader of medical organization and uh coils using you know stock trading and and things of that nature so yeah um so you you have all these identities. There's there's a lot of things you can you can draw here. Um, going back to those uh, sites of resistance, the way I'm interpreting that, and um, I I need to do more reading and see if you know Marx himself was saying this or if it was a, another Marxist theorist. Mm-hmm. But sites of um, resistance are kind of you know the safe places that conflict is supposed to uh, play out in until it kind of boils yeah, over, yeah. right? Um, and that includes like unions. Unions are another place where it's it's supposed to be a safe place for classes to to struggle, mm-hmm. um, and they um, need to struggle to. I mean, the proletariat specifically needs to struggle, or else they get reduced to a, the shittiest state possible. As in, like, yeah, it, yeah. The, you know, the the bourgeois class would like ask their employees to work as long as possible for as little as possible right? yeah. it's just competing interests and and if if the proletariat doesn't struggle then that's what they get and that is the worst state possible yeah. Yeah. um so uh we look at these sites of resistance as these safe places for this conflict to play out and we're given an example of a safe place for conflict to play out that's the cops and robbers dynamic right mm-hmm. um where yeah it's sort of like controlled um, little space yeah yeah um and I, I think there's there's you know a bunch of different angles you could take that in of like how does this safe place collapse right mm-hmm. um, and um, who is uh, perpetuating um, the like unhealthy dynamics of of that yeah, right yeah. I mean people are getting hurt on both sides yeah we're sort of I don't know I feel like we have like we we there's like moments in in both of our cities that we like have like a pin placed currently. That mm-hmm. we shall return later, perhaps after yeah, after more I think so of the too. story is yeah. you know revealed or reviewed. Yeah, more more of the story is available. Yeah. I think that applies to both yeah. of us. Um, so uh, just just to outline some some directions that this could go through, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just a lot more to uh, Marxist theory that you know goes beyond Marx, um, especially when you look at stuff like uh, ideology and you know how does you know there's a, there's another bit um that's i think important to mention is that classes are formed uh by two things right similar material conditions which is again not just like living in the same kind of house and mm-hmm. stuff but also like how you're making your living yeah, yeah. how you could you know what forces are operating you on your day to day and so so that's the first one similar uh 
material conditions and the second one is by conflict with other classes right and that's where um i think the protectorate has a very uh clear sense of identity of of class Mm -hmm. right they're all working for the government they are all fighting crime and by fighting crime they can define themselves as not criminal yeah yeah um uh, and yeah, so there's a bunch of other theorists, both literary Marxist theorists and like just actual Marxist theorists. And so there's a lot of uh, applications here. Um, so you could also look at how uh, when disenfranchised people like Taylor become frustrated with how the ruling class or any authority does things, they can turn to uh, like bad leaders and, and stuff that doesn't actually solve them um, or solve the problem. So like fascism as in like coil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think I'd have to read more about identifications of fascism to just straight up like uh, brand him that. But, you know, he's a strong man. Yeah. yeah. He's someone who's just going to take over and hopefully do better. And um, but we don't actually know that. And but he's he was kind of like it's like that quote that we pulled out last time. I feel like we talked about it where he's Mm -hmm. like crime is something to control and like wield, you know, rather than and like to to like use i suppose yeah. rather than like it's defeat. tame yeah, yeah 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 he's not actually interested in like solving these things yeah. he's interested in, in in yeah controlling them which bodes um, very ill and yeah and so this is basically like i would i think a marxist would would point at that and uh say that's an example of like what what the proletariat should not mm-hmm. do right yeah. find the an incorrect and in, in, instead of working together right instead of everyone working mm-hmm. together uh, finding one specific person to to lead. Um, uh, so because like the city is like disinterested in helping her, right, and and her father's material interests, mm-hmm. so she wants to turn in these nefarious directions. And this is true in every interaction with authority. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, in another place, um, we could look at Taylor's bullies and the authorities like protection of those bullies, right? As another example of class warfare. Um, each of the bullies is privileged in their own way. Um, not that we see much of Madison, so I can't really see that much of her, but I'm sure she has something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Emma's dad's lawyer. Sophia is a parahuman. They're both protected because they are, they represent the interests of the hegemonic class. Yeah, yeah. So the state has no interest in Taylor or her, or um, even like her supposed allies, like teachers, biased against her. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, actually, I, that I think that school meeting is a really great example of uh, like something you could draw a parallel with with class warfare. She is struggling to get just the most basic thing, mm-hmm. um, and even with her struggling, it's like not enough for her to get what she actually needs and what's actually fair. Yeah, yeah, fairness in in that sort of conflict. It's it, but the whole scene just feels like she's like you know, fighting against a brick wall sort of thing. Yeah. A brick wall that's slowly crushing yeah, her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, some other um, examples of like what, where, where things goes, go wrong is um, like it, Taylor, you know, joining the hegemonic class. If she like had joined the protectorate, mm-hmm. wouldn't actually like have solved her material interests. Yeah. Um, they wouldn't have rebuilt the ferry uh, just because she joins. Right. But because, I mean, yeah, because just because she joins doesn't yeah. mean that it's the the um, you know motivations and and you know actions of the entire class are going to change. Yeah, it, um, in yeah, 
so uh, related to that, so when you you give individuals right a ton of power, mm-hmm. right, as in like literally superpowers, um, suddenly their what their material interests are completely changes. Yeah, yeah, uh, because they have the power to get more um, and to get it differently. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think you can see a lot of times that they'll they'll switch uh, what they're from you know the class that they were to protecting a different class because they're being treated differently um and also to look at a different way you could also definitely um do an interpretation where uh parahumans are the hegemonic class right in in charge and ruling and non-parahumans are the the proletariat who are like supporting and I mean, basically, it's more like a nobility kind of thing. But, yeah, yeah. Um, it, that's also another form of class warfare. So that's very true. Because like class conflict. What protection do non-parahumans have against parahumans? Sometimes guns, but that's it. Yeah. And even that's not enough usually. So yeah. So with all of that, I think uh, my, my point here is that there's a lot of different angles to go down here, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, I think going forward we can also pay attention to other stuff. Um, I like I think. The reason I wanted to use Marxist um, theory here is that there there are a lot of examples of of class in here, like pretty explicitly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think as we go through, we might lose some of the more explicit class notions as we like get more and more into the world of parahumans oh, okay. of the yeah. parahumans rather than the world of the the unpowered. Because I feel like a lot of um, like world building too is is setting out those distinctions, setting out those those um, you know differences between the. Like setting out the kind of like geographic um, kind of makeup, I guess, of of a city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where we're understanding more of what the whole situation is, and as we know more, we can use that information more effectively in our understanding as we're reading. Yeah. So yeah, I was just hoping to uh, outline these these different directions mm-hmm. that that we can take. Um, basically, uh, I I've I've drawing the parallels was not just to just like oh say oh it's here but it's also you know if someone who's who's listening wants to write an essay about uh something with with uh, uh with a marxist understanding mm. of of um this or anything else you you can um if you wanted to go for more information and also for uh Foucault stuff again going to uh reading terry eagleton's is it terry i think it is yeah, right yeah although um, i don't know if he brings a and, Foucault I think he, he does. does. I'm, he's gotta. I don't remember. I don't remember him mentioning like some of the specific people. Like I don't know, like with Northrop Fry and all of those. I feel like I didn't. I don't remember specifically. Even if, even if um, Eagleton, either which way, I think you could still go and look at Eagleton to find some, you know, clarity and and resources. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm sure he and has he definitely, citations. Yeah, like and stuff. definitely just yeah. like checking the bibliography of of you know, kind of overview texts and such is a wonderful, mm-hmm. wonderful, you know, cache of resources. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's a long, long thread to follow. Oh, right? yeah, you, you definitely you fall down like open a another hole. work. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, yes, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if, if we're talking about Marx, uh, you know, there's, there's basically two main texts that I was um, pulling from in my understanding. I'm basically the main two that I've read uh, i mean i've read some other uh marxist but not marxist yeah. uh texts um but you know the communist manifesto and um uh the german ideology which is a is a different text yeah. and oh 
a little denser. It, that one was not fun. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, basically, the, the the point is here that there's a lot that we can we can pull from this section with uh, a Marxist understanding. And uh, while sort of to cap off both of these essays, mm-hmm. while we don't like specifically, if we were to write an actual essay, right, um, we would both look at one particular thing, one particular comparison, one particular use of a term mm-hmm. um, and understanding from these theorists uh, to bring out a message, yeah. right? Yeah. A specific thing that we can learn to bring it with us in in real life yeah, of like and, how can we use this text yeah to and it, does, and it doesn't place, have to be like practical use too it can just be like i use yeah. this to like think through these particular things yeah and, and to 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 go back right so these both of ours ended up being pretty political although like everything's political that's very so true. That's it's hard to not inevitable. be political you know everything yeah there's you can't Every everything is political. It's, like there's there's people. There's a lot of people. You and I both whose lives yeah, are like, politicized. It's just our, our I mean, even if you're apolitical, like so. that's that's still being political. You know what I mean? I mean, apolitical is just like being okay with the yeah quo, yeah, and that's you're only allowed to do that if you're from some particular denominations, right? And I mean, even classes like everyone has something to want society to better with them yeah um uh, i forget exactly oh yeah uh that we got pretty explicitly in the you know uh colloquial understanding of political in this um but that's not all critical theory is like this yes and um <laughs> it's not like, some of it's much it, more like talk- mundane yeah <laughs> yes and when, when we're talking about the like application to like real life where you know we're not always talking about how to you know foment revolution in the correct way um <laughs> it's also just like like anytime we're, we're doing you know literary analysis that's what we're doing we're looking into a text to seeing how we can make our lives better mm-hmm. um to you know to look at the more formalist interpretations of you know this 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 section uh talking about how you know, worrying about this like slippery slope that you go down, right? That that Taylor articulates yeah, yeah. is makes you think about, hey, maybe I should look at how I how I'm thinking and what I'm letting myself not think about, yeah. and um, re- reflect on that, and maybe get out of a hole that I'm sliding into. So, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so I I hope that this this um, that our conversations we had here were uh, helpful in in learning about these theories, and it's and not helpful, just interesting. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a couple of things. If you, uh, you know, disagree with our with our takes, I mean, it, kind of what we were trying to do is not really have a strong take. I know, but so, like people like, can still, you know. Yeah. No. What, what I'm just saying is that like, if you point out something, if you have a different interpretation, um, and you can argue it well, you're like, I'll I'll give it to you. It's yours. <laughs> like, or you know, contradictory interpretations can also be correct at the same yeah, time. Yeah, that's right. It's like. like Multiple different interpretations um, aren't mutually exclusive. Yes. Yeah, is that the correct and, term of like use of that term? Mutually exclusive. Yeah, I think yeah, so. they can exist I, in, like, in um, you know the in simultaneously. I mean, we're we're extracting different like messages. Yeah, yeah. I, like uh, I think it's I think it would be possible to and to to I mean, if we're sticking to Marxist theory, right? To uh, in one essay classify the the non-parahumans as the proletariat and parahumans as 
the bourgeois mm-hmm. class. And I think it's totally possible to do the complete opposite, where parahumans are the working class and non-parahumans who like control the government are the ruling yeah. class. Um, so yeah, it's all it's it, I, there's all, so many angles that we can approach this from. Yes. It's also just made me think of the, so uh, classes develop over time, mm-hmm. right? You, there used to be peasant nobility and. Uh, peasantry, you know, eventually was more and more subsumed into the proletariat as uh, the bourgeois took power from the nobility. And now there is no peasantry, there is no nobility. Ah. Um, and so you got these new classes. And you could also look at parahumans as yes. entirely yeah. new classes yeah. um, that are like working within the system, but solely eating it mm-hmm. or just consuming it. Yeah. So, yeah, lots of, lots of lots stuff of to consider. To yeah. Um, what, else, what other disclaimers should we say before we end this section? Uh, I don't know. What else? What else have we to say? Um, just another thing, just because we're using critical, uh, th- these these theorists does not mean that we endorse everything they've ever said. Oh, yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> There's so I many mean, disclaimers. You know, I'm sh- yes, yes. That's not to say that we're just saying that uh, because we like disagree with everything they said. No, that's not true. Um, so <laughs> what's useful about using literary theories is that they're you can learn, use them to look at what's going on in in real life and not just your life but what's going on in the mm. world and how you should be yeah, how you can be thinking about that right we look at literature as like a a simulation a, a safe space to you know carry out ideas and then kind of see what happens in them so um yeah so you if you look at you know political stuff in in a novel you can look at it and um see real life political stuff in a different angle so but all right i think that's all we have to say on our essays um our current recording time is three hours and 40 (laughs) minutes i'm sure a lot of that will be cut i'm sure we definitely had like a few sides at three hours yeah yeah, it'll be fine we if we don't go more than three hours i'm happy so hopefully less hopefully it'll be Uh, so let's do uh one little section at the end here that we we just don't end right off the back of Marx. Mm. <laughs> um, so I, I thought it would be fun to talk about what were our favorite powers from this section, ah, yeah. um, just so we can have a little a little fun discussion about yeah. that. You know, it's going to be really fun. Like some people who don't want to hear our essays, and then they just like have to listen to these <laughs> <have> to... <laughs> three tiny tiny bits, four tiny bits. Um, they have to find the timestamps. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Clarence, what is your favorite power from these first eight arcs? Ah, okay. I suppose it's. It's not like a pleasant sort of thing, um, but knight's power, and specifically mm-hmm. the way that t- um, Tattletail describes it, um, as yeah. like she like she has powers that turn her into something so wrong that she's become like she's got some sort of like mental block that keeps her from transforming. If anyone can see, like that fear mm-hmm. of being seen, ah ah, so so wonderful. I mean, not wonderful. It's terrible and very frustrating in like daily life, you know, but. I thought it was just like a really interesting like manifestation of that. Is that yeah, she can only I mean, transform if someone's not looking at her? Yeah, yeah, the, yes. It, what what I find interesting about that is that it's only seeing because Taylor does like it, with her bugs, she's able to perceive some parts mm-hmm. of her, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but never the whole ever. Um, and yeah, it's it's interesting. It's like it, it does make you wonder: is this like? limitation of the power right that it only happens when she can't be seen is this something that is like innate to what she is becoming right mm-hmm. is it something that's like actually like non-euclidean like 
horrible yeah. that it like is yeah. impossible for it to be viewed? Oh, it sounds so or wonderful. Is it... <laughs> <laughs> or or is it just something that like that that is the limitation of the yeah, power? Yeah. You know, just like a telekinesis. You know, someone telekinesis can't squish something in your brain because of the Manton limit. This is like that. Uh, um, but the first type, yeah. the first you know possibility. I think just I don't know. I like it feeds into that whole concept of like not wanting to be perceived. You know, mm-hmm. that, you know, some people feel occasionally. I don't know. Um, yeah. But I don't know. It's it's ah, it's so, <laughs> you know, darkly whimsical. Yes, I think I agree. Yes. Oh, man, darkly whimsical. You've got to read past. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, okay, so uh, my favorite power, it took me a minute. It, it t- took me a while because so many powers that I like are stuff that, like, really comes up mm-hmm. later, right? And I was like, okay, I'll talk about it. That then I yeah. guess, but this, there's a lot. Um, so uh, you know, I decided to play it safe and pick someone that's dead. Mm-hmm. So Bakada's power, oh, um, I think it's actually like just just the just the breadth of abilities mm-hmm. that she has. I, her her power is make any kind of bomb. Like that's so loose and, of a power, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and you know her rampage through. What's it called? The in arc three when they're you know going around through all the the storage lockers. Oh yeah, um, yeah. We we just see so much, and she's so like, she she's made so many that she doesn't even know what they yeah. do. Um, like she, there's there's multiple times I think where she like fires more than one, and the effects kind of cancel mm-hmm. out. Um, there's like uh one where she creates like a pillar of ice, or she, there's an explosion, and then one something that turns everything into ice and it turned the explosion into ice which is oh nuts. yeah yeah i remember that visual mm-hmm. oh. um the yeah I'm so, so there's I'm also so like a little that, like mm-hmm. she, i mean she like you know kind of went off on the whole thing but like she was a really interesting character yes yeah not not only her power but she's just interesting as yeah. a character she's like just a lot of fun to have on mm-hmm. screen i mm-hmm. think um just because she's like such a villain that she doesn't even know yeah. it. Like she's monologuing. Oh, I know. Like, I love. I love the monologuing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's just so classically, yeah. yeah, villainous. Yeah. She. I mean, she belongs in the Saturday morning cartoon, except, except you know, less yeah, murderous. She's like, like the. She's dark... very Batman villain. Yes, yes, I think. that's what it is. Because yeah. she has the like darkness of of you know like other villains of like murder and all of this and very like sadistic sort of things. Um, but she has the kind of like fantastical aspects that that only I mean not only Batman villains but like are pretty classically like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's um I mean her some of her stuff even lasts beyond her her death right because mm-hmm. the uh, the time bubbles right in the Leviathan fight that like catches a couple yeah. people um was actually like a a, a back of a yeah. bomb um. Yeah. <laughs> So so sad it turned out that way. Poor Dauntless. God damn it. Maybe I should have picked Dauntless. <laughs> you know, the power that continually gets more powerful over time. And then it's we never see what happens. Uh, He's gone forever. Really so long, long time. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. And uh, the last little thing is um, Bakura making a, a bomb with, like, paper clips and stuff oh, like yeah. uh, like multiple times um, okay so this section uh now is the themes and theories section so uh this is where we want to get you you guys's uh feedback and or not feedback um basically your your favorite themes and theories mm-hmm. uh for this section so um what i had in mind for this but i of course this is, might change over the course of actually doing them um is basically 
for for theories, I don't mean like like theorizing what's going to happen for the future. That's more for the speculation speculation mm-hmm. section, but um, kind of theories of like explanations and like un- like head cannons, basically. Um, did, do you know that yeah, term? Yeah, of course. Clarence. Uh-huh. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, of like why a character is a yeah, certain yeah. way and stuff like that. Stuff that you know is is something we can speculate on. Um, this is gets a little bit complicated because there's word of God, right? Um, Wild Bo, uh, after Worm was completed, has revealed a lot about the world. Yeah. Um, and so, like, those are kind Which of... Which totally changes, spoiler- like, the dynamic yeah. of, like, reader and text. Mm-hmm. Reader, or, like, author, yes. text, and reader. Like, that, that whole dynamic that is, like, usually set up where it's, like, author writes the text and then, like, you know, hands it off to the world and the world does whatever they want with it. It's totally mm-hmm. different because there's like this interaction, which I really like. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if you noticed while you were reading, but actually at the bottom of every um, every chapter, there's a lot of comments. Yeah, I, right? I didn't look into them um, just in case they were like. Y- yes, yeah. You know, I from... think there might be people on a second read yeah, yeah. reading them, right? I think. I'm not entirely sure. But Wild Bow shows up there occasionally. Yeah. Um, I really uh, like that interaction. Actually, not of, like, occasionally, very often. often. Yeah, yeah. It's actually really fascinating how he does that. It, uh, Sorry. <laughs> another thing, no, no, you're totally right, um, is I, I was almost tempted to um, start uh, f- for this episode and or maybe another uh, to do critical theory on not like specifically Worm itself, but like all of the extra textual stuff mm-hmm. all of the meta stuff that's happening right wild bill's interaction with the, with the community and how the community receives stuff and um i've always wanted to do connection between yeah like um, the community like that a exists text and is, its fan fiction like a discursive community in and of itself oh yeah yeah um i i actually wrote an essay <laughs> on how we've got worm um affected how people talk about yeah, worm yeah um which i thought was yeah, really, really interesting. Um, of course, it wasn't. It was. It was pretty bare bones on the evidence side. It's more just like how I felt things were yeah, going yeah. on. Anyway, it, actually, that's my main limitation is that I just don't have the time to like do the large scale research that it would take to have proper large conclusions that aren't just speculations. Just, it's very tedious. You yes. Know? Yes. Maybe someone else can do uh, a podcast <laughs> doing that. So. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's that's basically the explanation of what I, I I'm wanting this to be, and of course the the themes and stuff. I in in retrospect, um, and we we do have one theme and th- theme that we're 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 going to talk mm. about. But in retrospect, it's kind of like talking about a lot of different themes is actually going to take a lot yeah. of time, considering how much we talk. So I'm not entirely sure how to redefine that. Mm. Um, so uh, what I'm thinking of theories uh, of what we can do with with themes right now and. You guys are free to to come up with other uh, ideas that we could do. <laughs> We're all discovering what this is together. Um, to uh, uh, basically more raise a question that's that's more what we're doing in here. Um, it not so you guys can can tell us the theme. Uh, we'll uh, you know quote what you said or, or or summarize it, and you know add maybe some some other parallels and stuff to look into. But we won't fully explore all of the applications and 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 um, places that that theme comes yeah. up. All the, um, like, permutations and iterations of it. Yes, yes. What I would um, recommend is that you guys can do that. You know, maybe you want to write your own essay. And maybe you want to use a literary theory yeah, to do it. <laughs> so, um, so 
the one the one um theme we have uh this week because of course we only have um comments from our our announcement episode mm-hmm. right um is uh from Vladislav who uh asked us to talk about or, or, or had the theme of uh, sacrifice or sacrifices. Um, they mm. say, I think the story constantly explores the things people are willing to sacrifice to achieve their goals, including others and themselves. Probably seen best in Arc 8 when looking at Bastion slash Arms Master comparison of the actions they took in that fight and how it affected both the results and people around them. Yeah. So Arms Master, right, is that section. And then Bastion is a smaller section. Bastion is someone who has was in the media for uh, being racist, uh, yes. right? And um, he sacrifices himself. Or I mean, he asks Vista to collapse a mm-hmm. building on him to slow Leviathan yeah. down. So he like goes out in the noble way, but it's really like he's sacrificing his life, but he's also doing it to get his like reputation yeah. back. Yeah, that's part of the motivation. Um, so uh, Which, yeah, I think that's uh, yeah. The story does have a lot about uh, sacrifice. Absolutely, yeah. and I feel like the. Um, like what you sacrifice and the motivations of why you sacrifice can really impact the and, meaning of it, I guess. Like the action in and yeah, of itself, yeah. I don't think holds as much power as like what it means to each individual and all of that. Yeah. And, and there's the material being sacrificed. There's material things being mm-hmm. sacrificed, including lives. And then there's immaterial stuff like um, morality. Yeah. There's a lot of <laughs> Taylor's yeah, morality, like, maybe. Um, <laughs> Um, I'm the morality of all of the undersiders is also sacrificed when they're revealed, shown, shown Dinah, and yeah, they, they, just they kind of sacrifice, decide you know, to look away, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, um, there, and, and I think there's something to be said in the difference between like sacrificing versus like compromising, because mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of compromises, you know, and sort of like you know, sort like settling in, um, you know, like no, that's the wrong sort of metaphor um like with compromises it's more of like they they're willing to kind of you know ignore it but i feel like with sacrifice there has to be some sort of it has to be like more meaningful or like more like noted i guess Mm -hmm. yeah i feel like compromise can just kind of like be the action of inaction Mm -hmm. um whereas sacrifice to me seems like it's kind of okay so you would so you would say that like the undersiders is more of a of a compromise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's an exchange. Yeah. 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 Well, I guess the sacrifice is supposed to be an exchange, but hmm. Yeah. Worth thinking about. Um, and perhaps mm-hmm. as we go forward, uh, we'll we'll keep this theme in mind, Vladislav. Um, so thanks for, for submitting that. Yeah, it's definitely that. something to note. Um, kind of trace through. Yes. I, I think it's definitely worth writing an essay mm-hmm. about. Yeah. <laughs> so, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that that is um, our show for today. I think. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So it's a little long. We've Clarence and I have been talking for like five hours because we started talking before we recorded. Just, so I'm a rambly person. Okay. <laughs> we are. We are both rambly. We have a lot to say and only so much time to say. That's very it, true. So. Uh, um, a curse at time. Okay. So <laughs> if you like what we do here. <laughs> Um, so, so let, let, let me talk about real quick what else is going on in Doof mm. Media before we get to uh, talking about discussion threads and stuff. Um, so uh, some other stuff that's going on in Doof Media. The day that this episode comes out is uh, tonight is um, the the book club, uh, which is a, a lot of fun. If if you guys like anything that we we do here, um, of course it's it's more of the the normal literary analysis, not as like you know specific and 
esoteric as <laughs> some of this stuff. Um, so a lot more palatable um, uh, kind of analysis. Yeah. Um, they're, they're covering the Republic of Thieves, which I believe is the second. It is the third book in the Gentleman Bastard series. Um, so you know, they've also covered books one and two, if you guys want to uh, read those, which um, I've heard it's, it's a very enjoyable series. I haven't read it, so I won't be participating in this book club, but I highly recommend it. And all the book clubs are super awesome. So if you don't get to this one, you try to get to the next one. Any any book that you are possibly, uh, if it's possible for you to have read it by the time it comes out, you should you should do it. Mm. Um, and while we're talking about book clubs, uh, next week is the game club. So um, this is a, a new show that Elliot and Ruben are going on. I've I loved the first episode. Um, they uh, the first episode was was last month. They. Uh, covered uh, Hollow Knight, so basically they did a long form video essays, you know, pulling um, uh, examples of, of of gameplay and talking about their emergent experience uh, playing the game and how it felt. So they're talking; they're both um, in the game design industry, uh, so they have a lot of expertise mm. or, um, that they that they pull out. So they're talking about some um, what the game mechanics do and what they not only what they do for you know in inside the game but what they do for the feeling of the game and the messages and it's really really enjoyable so uh this month they are covering transistor which is a the another game by uh, i think super giant games um the first one was bastion if you've heard of that great music um so you have one week to play it so i think it's an eight hour game um or i mean if if you haven't played it and you don't plan to i would say still listen to the game club it's a lot of fun so yeah uh, that is what I have for what's going on in Doof. Of course, there's so much else, else stuff going on, but I could talk about it for an hour. So uh, we already did that. That's very so. true. <laughs> um, all yes. right. So if you like what we do here at Doof Media, um, consider donating a single dollar per month uh, or whatever else you can afford. It's due to the generosity of our patrons that we're able to um, create shows like this. You know, patron dollars are what pays our hosting fees and how we're able to you know, get like the microphone that I'm using, all of this. Um, yes. And as well as uh, a lot of other little yeah, things that we're doing. Yeah, a bunch of different I, things. We're, um, I keep, I'm not forgetting, I'm putting it off. Um, the We, we reached a, a patron goal a, a bit ago um, to start Doof Publishing, where we're going to publish a bunch of um, uh, stories, uh, or oh, yes, a, a lot yes. of writing from uh us as a group and hopefully uh, some like do the right thing short stories um i need to get on that uh but I've, i'm that's something that's uh, really helped out by um by by our patron support so um so uh, to do that you can go to patreon.com slash doofmedia and see all the great uh, patron rewards we have um uh if you join at the five dollar level, um, you uh, get access to the Doof and Chill sessions. So uh, I think next month it'll be an in- interview with with Clarence and I. It emphasis on Clarence because I'm already <laughs> part of the. You are network. a known entity. And yes, I'm a known entity, but no one knows Clarence yet. And so um, we'll yeah we'll, we'll just have a, a cool conversation and we'll just ramble on about random <laughs> stuff. Except it'll be intentional. So. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, that's not for a while, but anyway. Far away. Please also consider donating to Wildbow's Patreon, as he's the one who actually wrote the story that we've been talking about for six hours now. Um, he does some really incredible work, and this is what he does for a living, and he relies on patron donations. So 
donating to his Patreon is a really great way to help him out and ensure that uh, he's living comfortably while he's creating this amazing content that we're all enjoying. So uh, if you want to tell us how you felt about this episode or send us your um, uh, themes and theories and uh, speculation or questions for Clarence, um, the the way to do that would be to send us an email at decomposingpodcast at gmail.com or uh, in the Reddit thread, which is uh, linked in the description. So next week is the overview episode for book two. Um, so that's when we're we're... We'll, we'll be taking your questions for Clarence and your themes and theories from uh, the description in uh, from the thread in the description of this episode and the last one. Um, uh, so uh, you guys can send um, the, the stuff that you want uh, Clarence and I to talk about in the overview episode, as well as those themes and theories, which now are hopefully a little bit more helpfully uh, <laughs> described. I more, more clearly um, articulated. Hopefully, the... I, I yes yeah. the. The idea has become clear in my mind as I speak. Um, you know, we're constantly revising anyways. Yes. And we just love to hear what you guys think um, and, and what what parts you like. Do, is exploration kind of stuff working? Um, what what other... Um, just Yeah, just let us know what yeah. you think, basically. Yes. We're very excited to hear how you feel about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's all we have for y'all this week. Uh, next week, we have our overview episode covering arcs 9 sentinel through 14 prey <laughs>